football 200. Your choice, do or don't name this play in which the quarterback runs the ball and can choose to pitch it to another back. You don't know that one. <laughs> it's an option play. Ryan? <laughs> Uh, football, 400. I can tell you guys are big football fans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tom Landry perfected the shot. shotgun formation with this team. <laughs> Dallas Cowboys. Uh, do you think we should go to commercial? Ryan's <laughs> <laughs> taking on the 600. Okay, by signaling for one of these, a returner can reel in a kick without fear of getting tackled. Fair catch. Two clues left, Ryan. 800. These penalties are simultaneous violations by the offense and defense that cancel each other out. And they are called offsetting penalties. <laughs> Let's look at the uh, $1,000 no clue, just for the, the fun. The faces of it. on these three guys. Jimmy? As Minneapolis's U.S. Bank Stadium prepares to host Super Bowl 52, now you should know I'm this one from our last show. With names from it. this defensive yeah. line, I think I took the Vikings anyway. to four Super Bowls. If you guys <laughs> ring in and get this one, I will die. <laughs> <laughs> Who are the purple people eaters? We're going to take a break. I have to talk to them. Episode uh, 89, Hot Shot Scott. And here's the worst thing about that clip. Okay. You literally, when we, pre- we were preparing before we started recording, yeah. you looked at me with a straight face <laughs> yeah. and you asked me, how many of those did I get right? Yeah, I sort of forgot now, how easy they okay, were. Now, which one, I want, now that you've heard them, yeah, I yeah. want to know which ones were you suggesting? Do you didn't think I got offsetting? Oh, you penalties? never heard of Tom Landry, I don't think. I so. told you about the purple people hitter, eaters with yeah. uh, with Alan Page. Right, yeah. Can we talk Supreme about Alan Court. Page in episode 88? Yes, we did. Okay, so which one was it? Fair catch <laughs> yeah. that I don't know? <laughs> I don't know fair catch? Yeah. Offsetting penalties, I thought, might have thrown you a little a bit. A little bit yeah. off, yeah. yeah. That's a yeah. tough one. Well, that's one. That, oh, that one is particularly tough here in Seattle because we don't have offsetting penalties. Penalties in Seattle, the penalties are just always on the Seahawks. So right. There's no such thing as offsetting penalties. An offsetting penalty, but that'd be a win for the Hawks. Episode 89 with Hot Shot Scott. Hot Shot Scott That's is right. here. Did the T-Man call you? We gave you that nickname, right? Yes, you gave me that nickname. I gave you the nickname. But and, and I got to kn- say, Wheels sort of helped it move along. It could have really? died. Yeah, Wheels was calling me that as an intern. like Or whenever you gave it to me, Wheels sort of kept it going. Yeah. Hey, Hot Shot. Yeah. So, yes, yeah. you and we. Well, you know why I gave it to you? Because at Syracuse University, I was a member of the campus radio station, WJPZ Z89, or one of the Ooh. campus radio stations, the one that was not owned and operated by the university. And there was a guy, our number one DJ. He was the guy. Is that right? I don't know where he. Uh, yeah, number one. <laughs> Hotshot Scotty Burke. I don't know. Hotshot Scotty B, or no. Yeah, I, uh, Hotshot Scotty Berg, I think it was. Okay. And. As soon as you, I don't, I, I saw you and I said, Hotshot Scott. Yeah. I just, you just reminded me of him. Not that you look like him. He had long hair down to really? dark. Oh yeah. He was the man. Did he go he on to a radio career? I'm or? sure he did. Okay. I'm he sure. Loved it. I think he changed his name to Casey Kasem, but I'm not sure. <laughs> so he had a decent run. My God, are you old? Oh. You went to college with him. <laughs> so that's why I named you Hotshot Scott. Cause yes. that was the first scott that that jumped into me and it was the radio business and what have you and and i think it might have been i don't know whether you did i give you hot shot scott or did i give fish fish 
first. I think I'm first. I, I think you gave it to me once I started running the board for you on the midday show. Okay. Once we started kind of working together a little bit. And the fish was morning show, right? I mean, he filled in for you in the mornings, I want to say. So I, I think I'm first. I think Fish, when he got the nickname, might have been filling in for me on a midday show. Oh, is that right? I think so, but I don't. He yeah. remembers better than I would. Remember. I don't know. So, how many did I give? I gave. I gave Hot Shot Scott. I gave Fish. Did you didn't mind yours? Fish wanted to punch me in the nose. I always thought mine was stupid. I, I mean, I, I still do. I think it's it's Hot Shot it, Scott. It's awful if people think I gave it to myself. Well, that's you, what you makes go it by. Terrible. I mean, your, your Twitter, the thing that jumps <laughs> well, out on Twitter says Hotshot Scott. You know, we had a conversation when I went over to Cube 93 for the T-Man about whether we should go with that name oh, or that's not. Oh, that's what I yeah, asked you. Yeah, you asked me yeah, that. Yeah. So we literally had a conversation. It took us like 10 seconds. We're like, mm, I think people sort of know me by that, so let's just keep it. But I don't think I don't think Rob loved it. I didn't. I definitely didn't love it. it. It sounds like I gave it to myself. Well, Rob probably didn't love it. No offense, he probably didn't love it because he didn't give it to you. It was from it was from your your radio your sports yeah, radio days. But did he call you Hot Shot oh, Scott yeah. the whole time? Yeah. But then it came hard for him, and he'd call me Hot Fudge, or you know, he'd make oh, up I other see. iterations on I it. See. Yeah. Well, we had at the radio station at WJPZ in Syracuse, we had Hot Shot Scott, <laughs> yeah. who was the number one guy. Uh, I mean, gotta, he was the number one guy. I can't and, wait to find him. Uh, he was unbelievable. I'm going to look him up. He was, he was, he was destined for stardom. <laughs> we had Jam Master Andy. Oh, that's so 80s. Jam I love Master that. Andy, who, by the way, had a lisp. Oh, no. But ended up getting a good job in, like, West, like in my hometown. Like, I went, like, I graduated, and years later, I was, like, visiting my parents, and Jam Master, and he was calling himself the same thing. Jam Master Andy was <laughs> on the right. Yeah, so he had a good, I don't know where he is now. Jam Master Andy, yeah. we had... We had other guys. We had Scotty Meach, I think. And, oh, your buddy from the uh, Seattle Mariners back then was Kevin Martinez. Oh, yes, that's right. He went to Syracuse. He's now Kevin Martinez. You know what happens when your name is Kevin Martinez and you join a team with Edgar and Tino Martinez. (laughs) Yeah, you become (laughs) Kevin Martinez. (laughs) So we had all those. And then when I – I'll tell you, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you. When I did a a little bit of DJing, I was a sports guy. I was in the sports department. And I did all the sports stuff and the sports updates and whatever. And that's all I really cared about. But when you're in the sports department, you want to do a little DJing. You want to you yeah. try your hand in DJing. Well, you you want to spin some Barry Manilow. That's, that's right. <laughs> I mean, I interned at KJR and Cube. I was sort of hedging my bet. Oh, you there know, you go. I wanted to try a little bit of both. Right. Hit music, and but I, I always I loved sports. I didn't know what to do. I, I didn't know what to call myself for the – and I only had a couple of shifts here and there. Yeah. But I didn't want to go by Mitch Levy. I was Mitch Levy on sports, and I was thinking – Hmm, maybe if I change my name, I can disguise that I'm the same guy doing sports, even though I sound exactly the same. Yeah. So I came up with a wonderful idea, a wonderful alias no one would ever know, yeah. Mitchell Reed. <laughs> you tricked everybody. <laughs> I was Mitchell Reed. Wow, two guys named Mitch they sound exactly alike. It's sound, unbelievable. Yeah, sound exactly the same. One's Mitchell Reed and yeah. one's Mitch Levy. And then it dawned on me like, about three minutes later, what am I doing? And and why am I changing my name? And nobody listens. Nobody can listen to this radio station. Like four people listen to this radio station. Yeah. It's a campus radio station. I went so. to a college PLU for yeah. like a month or so, but the, the radio station was piped in through the dorms only. Oh. Into like the TVs yeah, it was, or yeah, something. It was, like, it was like closed circuit. That's right. It wasn't over That's there. Right. There's no FCC yeah. or anything. So yeah. yeah, no one's listening. Yeah. yeah. And it, it actually reminds me of a story. Me trying to change my identity actually reminds me of a story about a guy I told you a story about a few episodes ago, my Uncle Mike. 
Do you remember the Uncle uh, Mike story from a few episodes ago? The poor fella who was seasick laying on the bench the entire and me, time. The and me, yeah. the two Levies. Yeah. We're going deep sea fish. No, we're going, <laughs> what was it called? It was called, um, not deep sea fishing. It was called uh, drift fishing. Drift fishing. We're going drift fishing. We talked about it for years. And no, you're not. <laughs> we talked, we, we anticipated this trip literally. We talked about it on the dock while pulling in blowfish yeah. for years. Yeah. And then we finally did it. And neither one of us ever threw a rope, <laughs> never threw a line. We were both sick on the benches God. for four hours to do it. So that's uh, the Uncle Mike. Yeah. So think it, it's actually a funny story about changing your name and trying to protect your identity. So my great-grandfather, my father's grandfather, was named Benjamin Levy in the 1800s. And he started a shoe company, a shoe store, wholesale and retail. Okay. In, I've talked to you about this, Scranton, Pennsylvania, home of the office. And Joe Biden. And Joe Biden, that's right. (laughs) And Hillary Clinton's mom or her family, I think, maybe. All right, Scranton, Pennsylvania. Jerry McNamara for three for the Syracuse Orange. Sure. Uh, Yeah, it's a a factory. (laughs) Uh, And he started a shoe store, a shoe company, my great-grandfather, called B. Levy, his name Benjamin Levy, B. Levy Levy and Son Shoes. His son was Jake Levy, who was my grandfather. Gotcha, okay. Okay, my father's father was the son in the B. Levy and Son. And I, since I'm the youngest of two youngest, my mom's the youngest, my dad's the youngest, my grandfather, Jake, I never knew. He died 15 years before I was born. In fact, I never knew a grand, I really never knew a grandfather. The other one, my mom's father, died when I was three. So, because I'm the youngest of the youngest, and that's what happens when you're the youngest of two youngest, right? So, when my grandfather died, my father's father died in the 1950s, the store was left to my father. The, st- the business was left to my father and his four brothers. Okay. Okay, I've told you this. The, the, he, had, he was the young, my dad was the youngest of four boys, and the three of them were gigantic, gigantic guys, including Uncle Mike on, on, the, on, <laughs> yeah. the, on the drift fishing. Well, two of them, my father and one of the other brothers, moved to Florida and had a law career. They, while they had equity in the business, where they had ownership of the business, they didn't stay on to run the business. They only were part of the business when they were kids, boxing shoes, sure. yeah, like, yeah, yeah. All, like all the brothers. The other three brothers stayed in the business okay, so to your, run the business. Your dad and his other brother in Florida were just silent partners. Correct. Just, okay, silent gotcha. partners. They didn't run the day-to-day business, and their older brothers ran, ran the business, one of which was Uncle Mike. Okay. Okay, Uncle Mike's job position with the he was the travel and shoe guy. He was the travel and sales guy. The other two brothers were in the, you know, in the headquarters running the stores. Yeah. There were multiple stores. There was a pretty oh, okay. uh, you know, robust wholesale business and Uncle Mike was on the road. Uncle Mike was hitting the road and selling shoes. Okay. But Uncle Mike was very sensitive about the fact that he didn't want people to know that he was an owner in the business because he thought when he's out selling, if if vendors know that he's an owner, they'll try to take advantage of him because he has more clout. He just wanted to come across as just a regular sales guy who huh. has no ownership in the con- in the company. Okay. Because uh, otherwise, people will want deals and everything else. Yeah, and, they got a direct and, line and, to an owner. He's an yeah. owner for yeah. guys. He's not just a sales guy. He's an owner. So <laughs> Uncle Mike had an unbelievable idea. And, I, and this is true. What I'm about to tell you is true, and he did it for years, and... As a kid, I just accepted it, and then so, at some point, we all dawned on us like, this, "How did this?" He called himself Mike Levy of Believing in Such Shoes. <laughs> Is that right? Spelled the same. 
<laughs> Mike Levy. He spelled it the same way. God. He, he handed, his name was Myron. He handed business cards out that said M-Y-R or Mike L-E-V-Y, yeah. same as of B. Levy and Sun Shoes. And he says, and he shake everybody's hands. Hi, Mike Levy of B. Levy and Sun Shoes. <laughs> like that was going to totally throw right. people off. They would have no, no one would ever ask, but you spell it the same way as yeah. What a coincidence. Mike <laughs> Levy of B. Levy and Sun You happen to work there. And one of the same name as one of the owners. That seems like more so, confusion so, than good no. for him. So which worked better? Mitchell Reed? Did Mitchell <laughs> Reed throw people off my trail? Or did Mike Levy of B. Levy and Sun? I think Mitchell Reed really threw uh, people off more. That is spelled the exact same way. At least you had the you know the sense to change one of the names. Yeah, yeah, Mitchell Reed. Yeah. So music radio, you never you never saw future. You didn't no. like it. Yeah, I didn't either. I never wanted to front. It wasn't sell a question and, of not liking it. I was no good at it. Yeah, but if you would have been offered a, a radio gig in Scranton, Pennsylvania, to spin oh, tunes, you wouldn't. That have done was it. a dream job. Is that right? Yeah, <laughs> I'd still be there. I would have never left Scranton, Pennsylvania. <laughs> I had no desire so, for me to play so music. So we had you, we had Fish, oh. we had Wink. Yep. I gave Wink because his little always. Wink there. He still does it. Does anybody call him Wink anymore? Nobody calls him Wink anymore. Uh, some people do from KJR. Stretch Matt Stretch Johnson, I think, was my favorite nickname that I ever handed out. You know why I called him Matt Stretch Johnson? He looked like the the character from All in the Family. Yes. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stretch, Stretch. Stretch Cunningham. Stretch Cunningham. He, yeah. he was a younger, ver- same face, younger version of Stretch Cunningham down at the docks. He's such a funny guy, that <laughs> Stretch Cunningham. You know, New York Vinny gave him Fruit Boy at first. Yeah, I know that. He was Fruit Boy before I named him Stretch. That's right. Yeah. But yeah. I looked at him the first time. I looked at him, I'm like, Oh my God, you look like. And the guy's name is. James, the actor's name is he's well known like Cromwell or oh, Cornwell. The guy, for, yes, the guy who played Stretch Cunningham, that funny that's, guy, that Stretch. I forgot he, that's him. It's Cromwell. I want to say. I think so. He's a yeah. really good actor. Yeah, yeah, he's been in a ton yeah. of stuff. It's, yeah. he, his character was hysterical because he was this corny guy, and Archie liked nobody on the whole show ever. Yeah, in any show except for Stretch, he always had a thing for Stretch. <laughs> oh, that's Stretch Cunningham. He's a funny guy. That's Stretch Cunningham. <laughs> he loved. He loved Stretch Cunningham. We had Schwitzy, who passed away recently. Right. Alan Lamb. We had Searsy. I don't know. I'm probably forgetting some. Um, there was. Andy something? Did you give him a nickname? Oh, God. Chisholm hands. <laughs> <laughs> always, always the wet hands. Oh, he had the, the condition, the hydro. Oh, did he really? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know. I thought oh, a serious case of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the condition I'm talking about where you Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah the sloppy hands. The did wet he have hands. a nickname? Andy, can't remember his last name. I, I called him Jizzmans. Okay, well, there you go. I don't think I called it to him on, on the air. <laughs> Not we can on say the on the air. podcast, yeah, but yeah. anyway. Have you subscribed on your favorite podcast? This is episode 89 of Mitch Unfiltered. It's free to subscribe. Apple, Spotify, and all other platforms. You subscribe and listen and give us a five-star rating. Even write a review. If you are a Mitch Unfiltered patron... Yes. You got not one bonus episode. You got not two bonus episodes. You got last week three bonus episodes. We did 88P, you and me. I was in serious downshift mode that night, and I get a call from Mitch. No, Mitchell. that's not 88P. <laughs> oh, no, but the, the, one of the bonus ones. Yeah, so yeah. Eight, we did 88P, 88P and then yeah, you yeah. and I did a show, a late night call after a couple of bourbons. That's right. <laughs> on the first round draft choice, we didn't think they were going to draft, and they drafted somebody, so yeah. we did a quick call. And then I came back the following night after they picked two more guys and had the executive director of the Senior Bowl on. So three bonus episodes for Mitch Unfiltered Patron. It costs five bucks five bucks a month to become a patron. If you'd like to do so, just go to MitchUnfiltered.com and click on 
Become a patron. That's I think it. That's, all it that's says. what it says. Yep. And then it's five bucks, and you get extra shows each week. One is going to be a long form, just like this one, a long form show on Thursdays. And then you never know what else we're going to do. By the way, I've been doing this recently, so I'll continue the trend. What do Bruce Batson, Matt Worth, Mark Munoz, and Terry Mickelson all have in common? It only took me three weeks, but I think I figured it you out. Got now. it. There Come are, on. Where's my bell? Go our, ahead. Our last four patrons to sign up. Did I? Oh, look at me. I did it. Yes. You're a lot better than those contestants on Jeopardy, that's for sure. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> oh, God. And reminder, uh, patrons can very easily shift the patron shows. If you are a patron and you want the patron shows, the P-shows and the bonus episodes to come right to the app where you listen to all your other podcasts, you don't want to go to the Patreon app. You want to, It's a very simple thing to do. Yep. If you don't know and you haven't done it, just send me a note at mitch at mitchunfiltered.com and I will send you back a simple set of instructions to be able to get all the P-episodes there. And... My last bit of uh, information business is if you haven't clicked on all the regular episodes, the Monday episodes, if you haven't listened to them all and you like Mitch Unfiltered and you want us to stay around for a while, it really does us good when you go back and click play. All you got to do is click play. You don't even have to listen to the shows. We want you to, <laughs> yeah. but just click play on all of the shows that you haven't clicked play on and that will help us kind of fortify and strengthen the show. That's our ratings. There you go. Guests on episode 89, uh, Hotshot Scott, Matt Wells. He's the head coach of Texas Tech's football program, football team. You know, the first-round draft choice of the Seattle Seahawks was that linebacker, Jordan Brooks, That's right. out of Texas Tech. Matt Wells is going to tell us everything we want to know, his head coach, Great. everything we want to know about Jordan Brooks and why we should be excited about him. What's interesting about Matt Wells, and you'll find out when we, when we actually have the chat and the interview, he's a first-year head coach. At Texas Tech. So he only had Jordan Brooks for one year at middle linebacker at Texas Tech his senior year. Gotcha. Many years earlier, he was at Utah State for the final year of a guy by the name of Bobby Wagner. Wow. The middle linebacker of Utah State. And recently in an interview, he said the two kind of remind him of each other. Stop so we'll get him me. to clarify Don't that. tease me. So it just so happens that the Texas Tech coach was also Bobby Wagner's middle linebacker coach when he was at Utah State. And if that's not enough of synergy or whatever you want to call it, yeah. he was also the head coach of Utah State the last three years before he came to Texas Tech. And who was the quarterback for those three years at Utah State? Jordan Love, the guy that the Green Bay Packers traded up Right, in the first right. round depicts as the heir apparent to Aaron Rodgers in a very controversial right. uh, NFL draft move. So this guy's got tons of kind of ties to the NFL draft, including telling us all about our first round draft choice. Nice job, Packers. Picking a backup in a the first up, round. A Woo! backup quarterback. That is confidence. A new quarterback. Uh, Peter King will be with us on episode 89, Football Morning in America, a national perspective of the draft, and New York Post business columnist Thornton McHenry on the Mets purchase bid of whom? Who's trying to buy the New York Mets? Wow, I haven't heard this. Is it A-Rod? It is A-Rod oh, wow. okay, and his it. sweetheart. Jennifer Lopez. And they're called on the post, J-Rod is trying to buy, oh. J-Rod's trying to buy the New York Mets. The best power couple of 2001 ever. Hotshot episode 89, just not possible without our partners like Zeke's Pizza. President Dan Black will be with us on 89. Many of you know that I've been delivering pizza to healthcare workers here in the Northwest 
as a way to not only say thank you for all these selfless people keeping us safe so we can stay home, but also supporting an important local business and partner like Zeke's Pizza and Zeke's Pizza Delivers. Download the Zeke's Pizza app today, homegrown in the Northwest. Daniel's Broiler, and you can imagine the stress that the Schwartz family is under with our favorite world-class steakhouses in these unprecedented times. How can you help? a wonderful partner of mine for so many years, both on the podcast and the radio show. Well, beyond purchasing gift cards at danielsbroiler.com, don't forget about the Schwartz Brothers baked goods on display at your local grocery stores, Daniels Broiler World Class Steakhouses. The Kirkland Office of Gill Mortgage, 425-250-3150. Jordan Flowers will be with us on 89. Low interest rates, buying opportunities. News for those of you having trouble with monthly payments with three top 1% brokers in the Kirkland Office alone, the Kirkland Office of Gill Mortgage. Evergreen Golf Call. The market had kind of a neutral week. Tyler Hayes' team listening to you and understanding its clients' needs for decades, responsibly growing families' money. It's the private wealth management division with offices along the West Coast, headquartered here in Bellevue. Evergreen and its clients well-positioned to be able to take advantage of some opportunities that are going to present themselves here in this economy. Evergreen Golf Call, a premier wealth manager in the Northwest. Episode 89, here it is. It starts right now. Unfiltered. By franchise tagging you, I've agreed to be willing to pay you $16, million, $18 million next year for one year. And that's going to kill my salary cap. I'm agreeing to pay you that. Uh, okay, I'd like to work on a long-term deal. If you don't want to work on a long-term deal, that's fine. I'll look to trade you, but unless I get something that blows me away that's worth you, which is unbelievable to me, I'm still willing to pay you the $18 million. Now you, Now the ball's in your court, man. Unfiltered. I don't know whether this guy was a good pick or not. I don't know whether he's the successor to Bobby Wagner at middle linebacker for the future or not. Here's what I know as a Seahawks fan. If this was a good pick... This guy will be starting week one somewhere on the Seattle Seahawks defense because the 26th best defense or the seventh worst or the eighth worst defense in the NFL, the following year without its most disruptive player, takes a guy at number 27 in the first round. That guy has got to be an immediate contributor. Mitch is unfiltered. Hot Shots, Scott. Episode, what a good year, 1989. What happened? Where was the Final Four in 1989? Ramil Robinson hitting the free throws ah, at the Kingdome. Look at you. Seton Hall, Duke, Michigan, the Fighting Illini. As, as if we've already done this. With Kendall Gill, <laughs> Kenny Battle. Uh, there was another one, too, I can't remember. All right, I'll give you a trivia question. I yes, like you him. got it all right. Thank you. Seton Hall lost to Michigan, right? Or my, is it the other way? Ramil Robinson beat Andrew Gaze. And Ramon Ramos. Yeah, 1989. Who did Illinois beat to get to the Final Four? Ohio State. Incorrect. Da, 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 Illinois. And I, and I promise you these other guys wouldn't have gone. <laughs> no, no, no. They, they would, <laughs> believe me, they would have no idea. Oh, Syracuse. The Syracuse Orange. Ooh, Orange against Orange. Orange against Orange. Yeah. Yes. I w- and I was at the game in Minneapolis, Minnesota in the Elite Eight 
was a really good basketball game. Was really. Nick Anderson also on that Illinois yes, team? Yes, he was. Oh, I think, that's a yeah. good team. It was a great team. Yeah. And Illinois, I play, didn't they play Michigan? You say they played Michigan in the semifinal? In the semifinal, I think, yeah. And they're Big Ten rivals. They probably played at least yeah. two other times, maybe three. It might have been four times they played that year. Anyway, episode 89, and we've got some great names to name this one after. This is going to be very <laughs> – I think it's a no-brainer. Doesn't it have to be former Seahawks tight end – John Carlson, episode <laughs> Carlson, episode JC, out of? John Carlson, Notre Dame. Of, eh, Did they draft John boy, Carlson? Boy, you got to go on Jeopardy. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. They they, of course, they yeah. They drafted him. Yeah, I remember when he came to town, he was this tall, strapping, handsome, yeah. very sweet, I think religious. I think every every father wanted him to yeah. date, the, date the daughter. John Carlson, number 89. You remember him? Trouble getting trouble staying healthy, maybe? Yeah, a he got bit. hurt a lot. Concussions? And, I think so. Yeah. yeah, I think so. So we could just stop the search well, right Well, you're there. not going to do better than Ever. John Carlson. Okay, maybe some of these guys give him a run, but I don't think they pass him. Like A guy like Doug Baldwin, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, Doug Baldwin. Episode 89, yeah. episode you, Doug Baldwin. You're getting warmer. Undrafted Doug Baldwin. Undrafted. Yeah. Boy, what a pick that was. God. Huh? Brian Blades. Ooh, Brian Blades. From your youth, right out of the University of Miami. Brother was? Benny Blades, number was 36. Also a safety for the uh, Seattle. He was a hurricane as well, yes, right? Yes, he was. They played together for uh, Miami, probably for, I wouldn't say Schnellenberg, probably Jimmy Johnson, I would imagine. When Blades retired, he was the second best receiver behind Largent. You're not, he was really You're not good. suggesting that Brian Blades had a better Seahawks career than Dougie Fresh. I think his numbers are closer than we think. And if only we had a magic box to look that sort of stuff up, we could figure that out. But Well, we can do it by end. We just have to do it by the end of the show. Yeah. That's when we have to name it. So Doug Ball and Brian Blades. Brian Blades was really good. Some other names that you may or may not remember. I don't know if you remember former University of Washington player Chris Jurgens. No. Who wore number 89. Mark Bavaro. Ooh, tough to tackle, Mark Bavaro. Giants tight end. Wes Chandler wore 89. I, it's, a very oh. sensitive, <laughs> it's a very sensitive subject. Well, Kellen Winslow, Wes Chandler, Dan oh, Fouts. Oh, my God. Chuck, was it, uh, no, uh, Air Coriel. Oh, my God. Wow, I remember 41-38, that. Uwe Van Schaman yes. missed the field goal. <laughs> Rolf Bernerska didn't, and that was it. Actually, Rolf Bernerska missed one, too. You know that the, the Chargers, that was the greatest, that might have been the greatest game in playoff history, you know, the Chargers were up 24 nothing oh, in the Orange Bowl in that game. And we came back, and what happened? Again, Jesse, you're perfect so far. You should remember this. Oh, jeez. What happened? It was 24-10. to 10. The Dolphins had the ball at the end of the second quarter. So they go into halftime. One play left in the second quarter. Okay. What happened? Did famous, they... famous play. 24-10, to 10, they're behind. They were trailing 24 nothing. They got to within 24-10. They're at, like, the 45-yard line. So they're too far away for a... A field goal. Okay. And instead of throwing the Hail Mary, they did something else. A famous, famous really? play in NFL history. Like when a, I tell you, you're going to remember. You're going to remember seeing it. Like a hook and 20, ladder? You got it. Okay. You got it. Don Strzok had come into the game for, for David Woodley, <laughs> and he throws to Duriel Harris on just like a little a little button hook. Yeah, yeah. And as he catches it, Duriel Harris, he tosses to Tony Nathan. Oh, number 22. And he's running down the field on the final play of the half, and all of a sudden, 24-0 is 24-17. Half ends. Orange Bowl goes absolutely <laughs> berserk. And they play like an hour. They play like an hour, like five-hour game. That they lose 41-38, you know, Kellen Winslow coming off the field. Oh, I think he was totally... Heroic. Nah, heroic it was a bunch Kellen of Winslow. It was a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> but you know what happened right after that game? Uh, no. I believe. No, I'm wrong about that. Am I right about that or am I wrong about that? The next draft. It could have been the next draft that 13 came to town. Oh, that was 82 when that mm, happened that game? No, you know, they may have gone to the Super Bowl 
the next year to play the Redskins and John Riggins broke their sure. hearts off tackle. And then I think 13 came to town. I'm trying to, trying to, anyway, uh, Mike Ditka wore 89 in his playing days. People remember him as a colorful coach, but he was a great tight end. Very, very good. Tight very, end. I think he played for both the bears and the Cowboys. Is that about right? Yes. It ended ugly with Chicago. He went to Dallas uh-huh. and then he wrote a letter to the owner saying, I'd love to coach right. the bears. And that's, that's right. when he got the job. Steve Smith. Love Steve Smith. Carolina Panther wide receiver had a fiery. Well, I think he was mean. I, I don't. I think he was more than fiery. I think he threw a sucker punch. I'm trying to remember at an old Seahawks defensive back named Ken Lucas when they were both in share. There's something happened on the sidelines. I like got practice, and he broke his jaw. Oh, I didn't know that. He's- didn't he break Ken Lucas's jaw? He was a mean bastard that 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 Steve, but he was really good. At five so ten, he yes. had to like oh, constantly yeah. lift his leg up to show that he's you know where he's worthy in Marcus territory. You I know love what I, Steve you Smith. know what I remember about Steve Smith bringing it back to Seattle. The year that the Seahawks went to the Super Bowl, they beat Carolina in the championship game. The NFC Championship game, January 22nd, 2006. Mary Lou Henner. <laughs> That's my birthday. It's the only reason I remember. It was like, you thought I was all about, I'm one of the 12 people all of a sudden. There's 13 you now. You would be here if you were one of the 12 people. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you recall, he was coming in. They either, I think they might have been a wild card. They came in to face Mike Holmgren's 2005. NFC West champ, uh-huh. Seattle Seahawks. Was it Jake DeLome at quarterback? That's right. And I remember he said after that game that he could not get the calls into the, It was so loud at CenturyLink Field that he could not get the calls out to in the huddle. They couldn't even hear him in the huddle. It was just yeah. crazy loud. But I remember Steve Smith was a man possessed coming into that game, either the previous week or the week before, because they had played, I think, two weeks. I think there was a game in Chicago. You can check me on this where Steve Smith caught like 12 or 13. He was just unstoppable. Yeah. And do you remember what the Seahawks did? I don't. They put a linebacker on him to chuck him at the line of scrimmage named Kevin Bentley, number 57. I'll never forget. (laughs) I'll also never forget an old story, a a, a conversation that I had with Mike Holmgren before that game. It was like the NFC Championship game. The Seahawks are trying to go to their first ever Super Bowl, right? right. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's nervous as all hell, and I do an interview leading up to that NFC Championship game. I, I remember I also interviewed... Paul Allen that week. Wow, that's big. And I interviewed I interviewed Mike Holmgren, and the Holmgren interview was recorded. And I, I hope he doesn't mind me speaking out of turn. I think the statute of limitations is up. I did this I did this um, interview with him that we recorded and then we played as live. And after we finished the interview, it was like at noon on a day to play the next day. I was on the phone with him, and I go, "Hey, good luck, man. Good luck, man." And he goes. Don't worry about it. Really? It was unbelievable. I, I just remember the lo- I remember yeah. how he said, he was like, don't, don't worry about it. It's, we got it. Really? He was like, <laughs> abs- there was absolutely no chance yeah. in his voice. And this was like three days before the Carolina game. Don't worry about it. We got it. <laughs> I was nervous. Like he, he knew. Wow. He, he just was knew. Right. There, was, there was no way Carolina was coming in here. And then there was that bet that I was asked about on the Zoom call with Mayor McCrory about that. Oh, right. He was yeah, the yeah, mayor yeah. of Charlotte. And then yeah. he never paid off his bet. Now he's the governor he doesn't pay off his bet with Mitch. Now he's the governor of the state of North Carolina. Anyway, episode Steve Smith, episode Wes Chandler, episode Mike Ditka, John Carlson, Alexander Mogilny, a, a hockey player, 17-year hockey player, also wore number 89. You can have your choice at the end. I think I know where we're going to go, but let's let's talk about it at the end. The year right. Steve Smith and the Patriots played in the Super Bowl. I car- He carried me for three, four straight. I, I rode the Panthers. They covered every single week. 
Oh, back when I was doing my uh, sports gambling. They covered, and they even covered in the Super Bowl, but right. I, also, I also bet them to win straight up and lost a little bit there. But <laughs> I cashed out. It was my first ever. I cashed out a check. I thought uh, I brought it into the bank and thought I was gonna Scott. thought I was gonna get tackled for trying to cash this I'm bank. I'm telling you, this he, check. He was a mean he was guy. a beast. No, he was a mean guy. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna read up before the other stuff segment, and I'm gonna read to you what the account <laughs> of him sucker punching nice guy Ken Lucas and breaking. I think breaking his jaw. I, I think they took him to the hospital. I think they took him right off the sidelines, Ken Lucas, to the hospital after Steve Smith hit him. Unless I'm forgetting and I'm totally misrepresenting that, that story. I may be. All right. NFL draft has come and gone. How are you feeling? We all couldn't wait for the NFL draft. Why? Because it was the only thing we finally got the chance to watch in the world of sports. Yes. We watched it. We were excited for it. And then we were fill in the blank. We were what we've been in the past Bored. after about an hour. Yeah, Bored. I ran to my couch at 5.01. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know why. I couldn't wait. The first pick was at like 5.30 or something. Joe Burrow this, Joe Burrow that. By 5.31, if someone yeah. else said the name Joe Burrow, I was going to kill myself. You were done. You, Joe you, Burrow you, you Joe Burrowed out. Who knew the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL was drafted a few days ago? It's too bad because you know he's a really nice guy. That's the thing. He's so likable. Oh the God. food bank and the whole thing. Where what he's a, from yeah, and what a poverty and, and yeah, he's and done the, nothing wrong. Oh, I just, just can't you hear just his can't, name t- you can't take it. So how how we were excited, we were excited, we were excited, and yeah. even the, the the Seahawks even drafted that night, which a lot of us thought that they wouldn't. They trade down. How long until you were bored? After Tua, when did Tua go to the Dolphins? Well, he went like third? number five. Five, yeah. Yeah, you were done. After five, you I was... You made it to number five of a seven-round draft. Well, <laughs> listen to this. I was I was listening to it while, uh, while, while playing Halo on the Xbox. Because well, you can't sit still. <laughs> no, on I the can't. Zoom, On the famous Mitch Unfiltered Zoom call, <laughs> my, he, where, where, you were walking around the house. You were outside. I was outside for most of it. I, you, I, were, you were at I a... I can't you sit were, still, yeah. You were at a ball game. That's you were right, drinking yeah. shakes. Right. You were moving around. It was yeah. very distracting, by the way. Very distracting. Well, but I want to talk about that Zoom call at a, at a, at a, in a moment. But before we get to the Zoom call, I've got a couple of thoughts for you and questions. They're kind of like, I guess... I guess I want to play a game called Is It My Imagination or dot, dot, dot. But before I get to Is It My Imagination or dot, 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 I will say this because I know Mitch is always salty and always making fun. I did really like the fact that we saw the GMs and the coaches at home in their living rooms, yeah. in their family rooms, with their dogs, with their kids, with their wife. There was something very touching, yeah. especially – in the condition that the world is in, there was just something really nice about that aspect that I really enjoyed. I loved seeing Mike Vrabel forgetting he was on camera and pulling out his enormous tobacco out of his lip. I don't know if you saw that or not. <laughs> I think he sort of forgot this enormous chew he had in his lip. He spits that out. And then his kids are in the back in funny costumes. It was entertaining. I liked it. I think they should call Mike Zimmer Joe Exotic with the, the big uh, hunting <laughs> different animals up all over the place. Good Some Lord. were elaborate. Like, how about the place from Cl- Cliff Kingsbury, the coach, the second year coach of the card was, how about that place He's like, out of face. Scarface or something that play. I mean, Unbelievable. Like, but my wife looked at it. She goes, is there any chance he's not a douchebag? Is there any chance? <laughs> did I she use that word? Yeah, she did. Really? Well, she's getting a little uh, a little rougher <laughs> around the edges during this quarantine. <laughs> but is she going a beard? Is there? <laughs> she is, as a matter of fact. Is there any chance? I mean, that house and the well, way he looked. Well, the and- funny part about it is, so you have Kling's, Cliff Kingsbury, who's like the most nondescript NFL coach. He's one year in the league and he's the coach of the Cardinals. Yeah. In this magnificent, what looks like 
this incredible place. And then you got Bill Belichick, the most accomplished coach in NFL history, <laughs> right. over here in like the worst looking little <laughs> dining room with like a checkerboard. It's just awful. He was, and every time they, they they cut to him, it was like he knew when he left. He left his dog in the chair. Yeah. He had like no computer screen. Some of them had. Like John Schneider knocked down walls and had 17 screens yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and computers Big and war phones room. and you know like he was running the the, the civilized world <laughs> and, and Bill Belichick's got like one little computer <laughs> right. like a tele like a landline phone <laughs> but it was it was really nice the the one thing I will say now here's where I'll start is it my imagination or what is it my imagination or does every GM or most GMs, after every single pick, whether it be the first, second, third day, fifth round, sixth round, they get the, the shot of the GM after they've made the pick where they're celebrating and they're pumping their fists and they're <laughs> high-fiving their kids and they're hugging their wives. And every one of them has this look of, we fleeced them. We fleeced the <laughs> rest right. of the league. Every single pick. And yet, yeah. like, 75% of these guys are, are going to be out of football and like they're going to be like pumping gas in a couple of weeks. That's right. Yeah. I, so they celebrate like and John Schneider, God love him. We all love John yeah. Schneider and I don't you know, I don't want to get out on everybody's bad side. Sure. But he's the biggest he's the biggest culprit. The guy after every single pick. Does he want me to go over his last several uh first picks? <laughs> yeah. After every single pick, he looks like on the on the screen, he looks like oh my god. I did it. Yeah, I was able to. I was able Victory. to fool everybody. Yeah. I I got the guy. I got the guy. These guys are fools. You know, it just he just looks like he's just done the rest of the league in. I don't know. It just seems that way. I'm wondering if there's a little Ellen effect there. How Ellen seems like the nicest person on the oh. planet, but with with the cameras on John on, yeah, or just on, John. on all those guys. If 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 there was no camera on John, no. would he still be pumping his fists? I think so. He's that. Kind and I of think guy. I've seen him do. It. Yeah. I, oh yeah. I think the, I think okay. the, I think it's legitimate. I don't think he's playing for the cameras that's what i'm wondering i just think it's a little yeah, i know Was every he... single it's like if you just judged the seahawks picks in the last 10 years Was he pumping based his on his reaction <laughs> every single one yes he did he probably jumped in a pool after andre after lj collier every single pick yeah if a seahawk fan just said okay let me see i don't know how to react i don't know these guys because none of us really know these guys let me see how john schneider reacts after the Oh, we got to – you'd be running around the block yeah. thinking we're going to the Super Bowl. you got seven Hall of Famers in <laughs> one draft. And they're going to make the Hall of Fame in the first year. I mean, That's there's right. that kind of reaction. All right. Is it my imagination or was the Roger Goodell talking to the TV screen and the fans oh. of each team really, really annoying? I gotta say, the, was I, am I just an old ornery, get off my lawn guy? I'm the only guy that was bothered by this. Uh, before every single pick, I want to say for two days, at least two days, they came to cut to him. They're like, "Okay, Roger, coming to you in three, two, go, go look at the book. Hey, give me the booze. Hey, guys, come on, Cardinal fans. I mean, uh. First of all, it was so tacky and corny. Maybe it was funny the first, the very first moment he did it. Second of all, can they even see? Who are these people? Can they even see him? Okay. On that screen? You're asking a lot of questions. Okay, go ahead. You answer the question. First off, yes. the first time he did it, I thought it was really cool. You I, did. I didn't see it coming. He doesn't seem like a self-deprecating guy. Yeah. And I thought the booze maybe always bothered him. The fact that he brought it up, the one thing I'm going to miss the most and that the draft is getting boo. I thought that was pretty cool. 
the 38th time. <laughs> okay, all right, enough. He, he's like a one-trick pony. Like, one thing's funny, he just keeps going to it, you know? Well, I think he tries really hard. He I, does. I think he knows that his popularity is incredibly low, and he does everything he can from taking the tie off to sitting in the nice chair oh. to the M&Ms to the board. I think to the self-deprecate. I think he tries. You know, the, there's a lot of people, and maybe I'm one of them, that try really, really hard to get people to like him. He is totally that guy. You wouldn't believe that he is in charge of the NFL when he talks. Guy makes like $45 million a year. Right. He's the least charismatic <laughs> person well, I've ever seen in my life. Less, cha- less charismatic than Adam Silver. Of the M- the NBA commissioner, <laughs> well, it's a battle to the death for those two. But Adam Silver is very well liked. Yeah, and he's just he's kind of authentic. He doesn't seem like he's from the planet trying too hard, like Roger like, uh, Goodell. Well, okay, I'll give you an example. David Stern. Nobody liked David Stern, right? Nobody liked David Stern yeah. except for everybody liked David Stern. Nobody liked David Stern, especially here in Seattle. Every time David Stern grabbed a microphone on a court anywhere to give an MVP award or NBA, what, what happened? Every single time, what happened? Got booed. He got booed. Yeah. He was very unpopular. But I don't ever remember David Stern, may he rest in peace, I don't ever remember David Stern being like Roger Goodell where he was trying no. like hip little things to try to oh. get people to you know, self-deprecate. I don't remember. I just, I just remember David Stern taking it and moving on and realizing, you know what? I run the NBA, I make about forty million a year, and I'll just accept that I'm going to be. I'm going to be. It's commissioners the nature are of the, the job, right? Yeah. Boy, but Roger Goodell tries oh. so freaking hard, and that screen. Okay, you didn't answer the other question. Can they see him when he's talking to them? Can they see him? I'm saying they can't see him. I'm saying those are they are, real people? I think they use this. It's real people. Oh, it's, they are real people. Real fans. I remember reading that. I, whoever sponsored it, Bud Light or whatever the sponsor was, reached out on Twitter and said, "If anyone wants to, you know." videotape themselves send it to us so contrived so i think it's the same people oh. every single time so they can't hear oh. him it's it's not live but roger goodell at one point <laughs> he like goes over to that that leather chair he says ah oh, i'm gonna sit down in my easy chair i'll be uh, much more comfortable over here <laughs> good one roger like he's just got nothing to say at all it's like okay we, we know what an easy chair is oh. it was it was painful oh. watching him try to ad lib oh. and be quick what, was it a recording feet. of the, was all the cheering on that screen just a recording that he was talking to? Yeah, Literally it was talking. a recording. Oh my god! And I think they really? use the same ones every single time. Yeah, I mean you can't have. Oh and, and, and he's sitting there. T- he's, he's really trying to fake like he's talking to these people. I think people. he's faking it. Yeah, yeah, I know. Oh, I know. God, that's painful. The whole production was impressive. It, They're pretty good. There was not a lot of snags yeah, and hiccups. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty impressive. But that part. All right. Less Roger Goodell. My last. My last. Is it my imagination or what is? Is it my imagination, or did every single draft choice have a horrific story from their past? Or did I just notice it? And I don't want to make fun, because the last thing I want to do is make fun of somebody or a group of people that have a tragic past and have parents that go to jail and have drug problems and have homelessness and shots fired. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I was paying more attention this year than I normally pay, because I can normally go outside. I really can't. It just felt like... A, every single draft choice for three days had this terrible life story leading up to college or while he was at college. And and furthermore, and I think ESPN did a fine job. I don't mean to get on ESPN's back. But it almost felt, it almost felt exploitive. 
it almost felt like yeah. ESPN was going out of its way, like like in production meetings before this started. They said, all right, we can't go to the – it's not going to be in Vegas. We're not going to be there. We're going to be in the studio. We're going to have talking heads on screens. So here's what we're going to do, gentlemen and ladies. We're going to find the worst story that we can find on every draft choice the, the cousin that got shot and killed, the parents that did drugs in front of them. I mean, even even the Seahawks alone, they had, I believe, drafted two guys that were homeless. They signed an unrestricted free agent or un, an undrafted free agent that got shot in a drive-by shooting. I, I, I mean, it was unbelievable. Or, or, or you can tell me if, if, I was, if I'm making a mountain out of a mole. I got a text from a friend of mine who said the way to become a first-round pick in the NFL draft is to have a horrendous backstory. So you weren't the only one that noticed it. And I think it's just, it's every 10 minutes. You know, picks have, the Olympics are, if you've ever watched, I know you don't like the Olympics. They're very good at finding those stories that make you root for the athlete. But that, but it's not every 10 minutes. This was just like almost too much. People have bad stuff that happens to them in their lives. It's not uncommon. We could all come up with something that happened to us. But every 10 minutes, you're not alone on that. But you don't watch the draft. You know, you've said you don't really watch it. So maybe they do it. All the time, and we just be. we don't know Could because be. you and I don't really watch but you, it. You're actually focusing on the first round, and I'm telling you, it felt like beyond the first round too. Yeah. Oh wait, <laughs> I, I'm talking about the last the last pick of the Seahawks draft, the kid for the LSU tight end, Stephen Sullivan. Yeah, there was a story about him. It felt like every time I turned around, my my buddy Greg Bell. Let's say Greg Bell for example. My buddy Greg Bell, the Tacoma News Tribune, who is a fabulous, a fabulous beat writer we are so lucky to have him he's so great and he's great on the radio and he's great whatever he does it almost felt like every time I turned around on on Twitter he was writing something like just got off zoom with the Seahawks latest draft choice I the kid from Syracuse who I love and we'll talk about I guess at some point uh, that they drafted in the fifth round who I really like you know he got arrested for stealing his his girlfriend's pocketbook or purse in high school and he lost his he lost his scholarship to Texas A&M if it just felt like every time I turned around Greg was saying I just got off the zoom and boy it's refreshing to hear these this guy talk about what happened to him and and it's it was it was pick after pick yeah it was pick after pick it was unbelievable uh, yeah. I mean, Seahawks typically like those kinds of guys. Yeah. But you're saying it's not. I mean, no, not just no, it's everybody. No, no. Yeah. I'm just using because I was playing, paying complete attention to the Seahawks. Uh, and then there's, the, the, I figure there's one thing. There's only one thing worse than mock NFL draft. I hate. I don't know where you are in mock NFL drafts, and I read them all. I'm not suggesting that I skip them or I give them the cold shoulder or I ignore them. I read all the mock drafts. They're a little silly though, because as soon as one pick is off, then the rest are off. They're right? terrible. <laughs> How, how do you like them on the radio? How do you? <laughs> I was so happy Gas didn't make us do a mock draft when I was on KJR. Oh, how do you like them on the radio? Can I continue on? Yes, you can. Don't yeah, get I, me in trouble. I got my answer. Don't get me in All trouble. Right. I just don't like mock drafts. Gotcha. I think people. But you read them. I do. I, I read them. Yeah. I, I think that they are the least accurate thing all year <laughs> round in any sport that's published, except for one thing, and that's. The grades after the NFL oh, draft. <laughs> right. Everyone's got to get And it's grade. all a common denominator because I feel like, and I've told this story before on the air, and I'll say it again. You will never hear, like, if you're listening to episode 89 right now, to hear Mitch Levy evaluate these players uh, that the Seahawks drafted and this is what's great about him. And, oh, I'm gonna, you're going to love this guy. Guaranteed Hall of Famer this, this guy one. was yeah. a great deal on, uh, an episode, on, on round four. And this guy, I can't believe they oh. traded up and get him. You're not going to hear any of that because I contend, and I really do, 
And, and not this is not a blanket statement. There are people like uh, take Mel Kuyper for example. I've known Mel Kuyper for thirty years. I've known him for thirty years, and Mel Kuyper spends his year doing this. Yeah. When college football is on, he is scouting, and, and believe me, he's wrong about more than he's right. He's wrong on his dra- grades more than he's right. I'm just telling you, there's a guy, and there's probably five or six of them or seven of them that really during college football season take notes, know the tackle of, of Georgia that's going to go number five, know all these guys, watch them during games for the their entire college career and have a baseline knowledge of these guys. before. That's like 3% of the guys. The other 97% of us you and me included, and everybody else on radio and TV, sorry, sports radio, whatever, that that sit around before the draft and say, I hope that the, the Seahawks ought to draft this guy or the, the, the Bears ought to draft this guy or this guy's going to be a great pro. 97% of us, and we all watch college football. I'm not saying we don't watch college football. Yeah. I watch college football as much as the next guy. I watch for hours and hours on Saturday. Sure. If you would ask me what the name of the offensive tackle, and I bring him up because he was the fourth pick of Georgia was, in December. And this guy played a full career at Georgia. It was right. a great offense. If you asked, what's the name of the offensive tackle of Georgia? I would have no idea. If you said this guy's name, I would have no idea who he is. And I watch Georgia on CBS play all the time. That's right. I have no idea. Okay. 97% <laughs> of us don't have any idea who these guys are until the season ends and we start reading clips about them and we start watching YouTube videos. And then it's funny what happens. We all start to become mavens and knowledgeable <laughs> yeah. like scouts on these guys when we didn't know who they were in december we knew who they were in january and february so we started reading draft guides and now by the time april rolls around oh the <laughs> offensive tackle from georgia oh i, I mean that's gonna be a, that's a great great deal for them for them they'd be able to great value i love when, great yeah, value when the when the fact is is that we're just speaking based on what we read in the last three months. Well, not only that, but I, I go to look at somebody and everyone's highlight film, they look like oh, a Hall of Famer. Of course. This guy, Nick Bond, I, I'd never heard of him. He went to no. Wisconsin. No. I kind of wanted the Hawks <laughs> to get him. I went, right. this guy looked like Dick, uh, Dick Buckus out there. I mean, he's killing people. It probably was Dick Buckus. They just <laughs> spiced him in. They CGI Nick Bond on their oh, Everyone just looks amazing in their highlight films, and yet we know how many are going to actually And so I'll out. have you know that the NFL draft grades are out and we're going to all read them, they mean absolutely nothing. And when I say they mean absolutely nothing, you're going to say, oh, Mitch is defending the Seahawks because the Seahawks got just ripped. They got ripped nationally. They got the third worst overall grade when you put all of these guys together, all their grades. They got totally ripped. And people are going to say, oh, Mitch is just defending the Seahawks. I'm not. They're bad when they say they're good. They're bad when they say they're bad. I'll give you an example in a second. But the Seahawks got C's and D's from just about everybody. Even the first pick, Jordan Brooks? No, I'm talking about their overall oh, draft oh, class. As a whole, gotcha, yeah, okay. Yeah. C's they and got D's. C's, C, yeah. uh, mostly C's, a B here, a D there. Their grade point average was a Scott Soden, Issaquah <laughs> High School-like. Yeah, but you said two, some B's. I mean, that can't be Scott 2. Soden. 2.18. <laughs> oh, their grade point average was 2.18. That's probably a little higher than mine after graduation. That's called academically ineligible. They were 2.18. <laughs> right. They were the third worst. When you, and, and, and when I say... This, they took like 10 or 15 of these guys that I'm telling you know nothing what they're doing. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Okay. Here, here's, just, here's, here's how much you should worry about. And I, by the way, this may be a shit class. Right. They may have done a terrible job. In fact, but that's kind of your point. No one really knows. Right. Yeah. It, it may, yeah. Maybe they did do a terrible job. In fact, I read to you on one of the bonus episodes the, the, the facts about the first picks of 
John Schneider the last six or seven yep. years, they have not been good. He has not been good. The Schneider and Carroll have not yep. been good at the beginning of drafts in years. They've been pretty good in fourths and fifths and undrafted rookies That's and right. those types of guys. That's their strength. That's their strength. But they have not been very good. So maybe this is a shit class. But here's what I here here's how much you should worry about the 2.18 grade point average at the Seahawks draft class. Okay, right? I'm ready because I am worried. I don't want a bad draft class. Let's talk 2014. Okay. I'm going to read to you real quickly the Seahawks draft class in 2014. And then I'm going to read to you a quick draft grade that they got the day after the draft had completed okay. from one of these big shots. Okay. Here was the draft. Paul Richardson, remember him? I do, yes. Colorado. Uh-huh. Always getting hurt. Really yeah, thin legs. Healthy. Yeah, really small. Justin Britt, who on the day that we're recording this got released. Cassius Marsh, remember UCLA. UCLA, yeah. Kevin Norwood. Not the kicker? Kevin, no. Okay. Kevin Pierre-Lewis. Jimmy, either Staten or Stoughton. Let's say Staten. Garrett Scott. Eric Pinkins. And Kiero Small. That's the draft class of 2014 of John Schneider and Pete Carroll. After Britt, I thought you were naming the newest patrons. I mean, that's how familiar I am with those guys. <laughs> I mean, it's like I have no idea who you're talking about. After Britt. Yeah. yeah. So the best pick was Britt. Well, that, that whole group. That, yeah, probably. By far. Yeah, yeah. Starter. I mean, not, even, not even close. Yeah. By far, he was the best pick. What happened to Paul, Paul Richardson, I think he's by out the of way. the league. Is that right? I think he's out. Jeez. Cassius Morris, I think, is hanging on. He's come coming back and forth a few times. I, I just one of these, I don't even know who it is. His name will remain nameless. No reason to make fun of him. But I'm just going to read to you verbatim what the grade this guy gave that class okay. the day after that draft ended. He writes, 2014 Seahawks. I asked this earlier, can one pick spoil an entire draft? So he hates one pick of this group. One pick, but he loves the he, he loves the class, okay. all right? I don't quite get why Seattle thought anyone else would select Justin Britt prior to the 5th round, but the team has had luck with reaches before. So outside of that pick, so that's the one he doesn't <laughs> like. Okay. God, this is not aged well for him. Okay. <laughs> and I did not write this. Right. Okay. I, I found this. Oh, God. Outside of the Brit pick. Yeah. I loved every one of Seattle's choices. Including the Kevins. Paul Richardson and Kevin Norwood should give Russell Wilson some potent weapons to work with for years to come. Oh, man. Cassius nice. Marsh is a quality pass rusher who provided solid value at the beginning of the fourth round. Kevin Pierre-Louis was a second was a sound selection later on. He's the exact type of athletic linebacker that the Seahawks love. All of this is the reason why I'm giving the Seahawks the highest grade in the entire draft, an A+. <laughs> <laughs> and so we should have two Super Bowl titles after 14 oh, with these guys, God. right? Yeah. Nonsense. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's all you need to know. Uh, do you need to know anything more than that? Yeah. Cassius Marsh, by the way, put him on my first team all preseason. He looked awesome in the preseason. Who the guy? They always have a couple guys like that. Yeah. Right? Tulu Mealy. There was I a guy from Oregon, earlier. an undersized defensive end who just was all over the place in preseason. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna call, Nick. Nick Reed. Oh, Nick Reed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was a beast. Absolute beast in preseason. <laughs> okay, he'll be on that oh, team too. Oh, God. Yeah. I'm just telling you. Yeah. Read them if you'd like. I'll read them. I'm not telling you not to read them, yeah. but th- come on. 
Is could there be a more inaccurate grading selection than the one I just read to you for that set of guys? And the fact that the one that he pointed out that they the reached one that he didn't like, the one who was Justin a starter in the NFL for so six who did years. they get? They got this guy Jordan Brooks. You're going to hear in a moment from Jordan Brooks's high school, uh, high school college coach, Texas Tech. This guy's a very interesting guy. This coach because he's only one year at Texas Tech, so he only coached Jordan Brooks his senior year playing middle linebacker. But as I said in the tease, yeah. Where he came from was Utah State, and he coached Bobby Wagner in his senior year. So he has grounds of comparison, one middle linebacker to the next middle linebacker, Bobby Wagner, who are now teammates in Jordan Brooks. Not many people more qualified than him to compare the two, having seen them both in college, right? right? I mean, that's, that's pretty think. cool. Yeah. So they got Jordan Brooks, the middle linebacker, who, and I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you, well, we can talk a little bit about this. I know we've gone long in the first segment. We'll get to the three interviews, really good interviews, by the way, uh, and then the other stuff segment. Uh, quickly, I'll go through it. Daryl Taylor is a defensive end out of Tennessee. Damian Lewis is a guard in the third round out of LSU. Colby Parkinson, there's a story about Colby Parkinson. I got myself in trouble. I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm like the the, the, the anti-Colby Parkinson, Colby Parkinson, because I sent out a nondescript tweet, and people jumped all over me. <laughs> a fourth-round tight end out of Stanford, because they need tight ends. Uh, DJ Dallas, a running back out of Miami, he catches the ball out of the backfield. My guy, Alton Robinson, uh, a defensive end from Syracuse, who I've watched play for three years. Pretty good, tall, lanky sack guy okay. from Syracuse. Freddie Swain, a wide receiver from Florida. And then Steven Sullivan, this gigantic tight end at LSU. That's the class. Everybody knows these guys' names by now. And, and, I, and I, will just, I will just say this. I'm not going to sit here and tell you which of these guys is going to be good and because I'm just not going to be what I just told you I'm not right. and what I think nobody is. People will listen to this podcast in five years and rip the shit out of us for being wrong. Believe me, I, I don't know I don't know who of these of course, guys is yeah, going to no be good. Does. I come at this from a very kind of pragmatic angle that you and I discussed when we did the, the Patreon episode the other day. For me as a Seahawks fan, it's very simple. The Seahawks as a football team were a playoff contending team last year. They made it to the second week of the NFC playoffs. They were in a position with three weeks to go in the regular season to have a chance at the number one. Remember we went through this with Mr. Yep. Postseason? Have a chance for the number one right. seed. Okay, but when you look at that team, it's really, really clear. They were good enough offensively, which is kind of weird because on the day we're recording this, they're getting rid of all their offensive linemen. Right. It looks like they're going to have four, four new out of five offensive linemen from an offense that was really good last year in the playoffs under Russell Wilson. But they're going to change all their offensive line, which is fine, fine. But it was it's it's clear. I'm not I'm not I'm not reinventing the wheel here. Anybody who watched the Seahawks knows offensively when Carson was healthy and Penny was healthy and yeah. the receivers were going, DK Metcalf was going. I know the offensive line wasn't great. Tight end was going. The tight ends were going a little bit. They were hurt. What when they were healthy, they were. F easily, Scott, good enough to win a Super Bowl offensively. Yep. They had plenty of firepower. He was having a great year. At one point, he was the MVP of the league with Lamar Jack. I mean, offensively, they were fine. They were fine. Yep. You know, of course, you want to add to that. Anybody who watched him over the course of the year knows that defensively, if you want to be kind, they were below average, if you want to be kind. If you want to be real, they stunk. Right. For, for most of the year, they stunk. Now, if you wanna, if you wanna take a step back and give them the benefit of the doubt, we could say this: at the end of the year, the defense played a little bit better. Their stats started to move up when we were doing tail of the tape, yeah. because Clowney was playing well when he was in there at the end of the year. Remember the San Francisco game? Yep. 
They got Quandre Diggs from Detroit, and he made a big difference. So, so yes, defensively, they were playing better at the end. But in a whole, the, the reason that the Seahawks were not a number one or number two seed and not deeper into the playoffs very simply was their defense. Yep. So the way I look at this is I don't know whether Jordan Brooks is any good. I don't know Taylor, Lewis, Parkinson, any of these guys. I have no idea. But here's the way I'm going to judge it, okay? When you've got one of the worst defenses in the league, which is what they had, and you draft two guys on defense in the first two rounds, and let's also remember what I said to you on the Patron Show. Not only do they have the worst defense or one of the worst defenses in the league, their most disruptive player is not on the team. We hope he will be, maybe even by the time people listen to this recording, okay? Jadavion Clowney, their most disruptive player of the whole defense, is not even on the team. If they are going to go out and draft two picks in the first two rounds that play defense, which is what I wanted them to do, we all wanted them sure, to do, yeah. I don't care whether it's a linebacker or a defensive end. I don't care if it's a guy that plays Bobby Wagner's position or not. It's very simple. These two guys will be judged, at least by Mitch Levy, based on are they immediate contributors when the season starts. They A bad defense, yeah. a first-round pick, and a second-round pick that are defensive players from big schools and big conferences that, that John Schneider is pumping his fist after, right. after he right. drafts, right? Yeah. I don't want to hear that Jordan Brooks of Texas Tech – is not starting because he's better a middle linebacker. and yeah. No, no, no. That's not good enough. I, Being yeah. the successor of Bobby Wagner is not good enough. I don't want to hear understudy. No. Don't give me understudy. No. He has got to be good enough to win a position somewhere, an outside linebacker, an edge rusher, a real contributing, rotational, starting type caliber player. Find a place for him. Yep. If he's worthy of the 27th pick, then he should be able to join a bad defense and they ought to find a play. And the same goes true, to a little bit lesser extent, because he's a second-round pick, to this guy, Daryl Taylor. He's a defensive end, a pass rusher. Okay. 6'4", 255, played I, in the I, SEC. I'm not going down the LJ Collier <laughs> route again. Yeah. It's, it's That's not good enough. I don't want to hear that he's a project, right? right? There were guys <laughs> no there. Projects, I don't want to hear that the linebacker is a project, right? Yeah. These are first and second round draft choices drafted to bad defenses. Daryl Taylor, if it's a good pick and it's worthy of the fist pumping and the and the gum chewing of, of a P. Carroll and all of the hullabaloo after yeah. they, then he better be on the field on first and second down in the first game. I don't want to hear, hey, he just needs some time to get his field. No. These guys should be making big-time contributions to this football team at the beginning, and that's the way I'm going to judge them, those two guys anyway. And then you go down the line, Damian Lewis, third-rounder, yeah. a, a guard who's picked in the third round. 6'3", 330, played at LSU, played he, in a lot of big football we, games. At the very least, we should be discussing, unless he gets hurt, we should be discussing him as a potential starter in the competition through the preseason. Maybe he doesn't win the job. Maybe it's close, but he should be right in the mix. Yep. Otherwise, I'm going to come back to why were, they, why were we pumping our fists and drafting guys? Because inevitably, John Schneider and Pete Carroll, and we know this to be true, they always draft guys that the rest of the world says they picked too early. Get a little cute sometimes, don't they? I don't know. No, they might know better than, the, as I said, these other guys that we're talking about, I don't think know anything. Well, you've, you've read their first-round picks the past five years or six yes, years. and. Not, 
So the, maybe they are getting a little were, too cute. Those were their first picks. Yeah, those right. Were their first oh, I see. Picks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of them were in the second round, but the, the, the point is still the point. Yeah. Let, let's just put it this way. You're going to live a long life, I hope. Thank you. I'm probably not. Jesus, okay. okay? You're going to live a long <laughs> life. And let me tell you what's never going to happen in your lifetime. You're going to die, and this is never going to happen. The Seahawks are never going to pick in a draft, ever, not one time while you're alive. The guy who's on the bottom of the screen saying best available, the little guy, the oh, name, yeah, yeah, yeah. here's the best two, the, the best guy available right now, regardless of position. They will, you will never then see the Seattle Seahawks select that guy. Never. It will never be. <laughs> so true. That you will go to nope. your grave. You're nope. going down in the ground, and that's never going to happen. They will always be. And, and that, to me, that's fine. That's fine. Yep. But got to start, got to play on a bad defense, got to be contributors. That's the way I look at it. Well, we were disappointed last year with LJ Collier and Marquise Blair. First and second rounders, right? No impact. I don't want that again. Can't have that again. And that was a bad defense. I could have used some young guys to come in and help, and they got nothing. Me? Yeah. Nothing well, from the well, well Marquise I mean, started a couple games, but he wasn't terrible. I the, wanted him to come in and punch people. Well, I think the bigger indictment than Blair was Collier for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Now, Blair was a safety. And they had, at one point in the year, Quandre Diggs and Bradley McDougal. So they had two quality at the, in the middle of the year. That's number one. Number two, he was a second-round pick. Collier was a first-round pick. Number three, Collier played the position that was the weakest position on the football team, the defensive line. Yeah, true. How, how, many, how, many, how, how many times are you going to hear they're just painful on the defensive line, the rotation? They're not getting any heat on the quarterback. They can't yeah. get any pressure. How many times are you going to hear me say that or anybody else say that? L.J. Collier could have helped, but he was considered a project, and now they're all saying, okay, second year. So I'm waiting on him too. Great. Project's done. Okay, I, tell I, him? Again, we're putting him on that list that I gave you the other night. <laughs> yeah. If he's not good this year, he should be a contributor yep. this year, or it's a bad pick. Right. It's a bad pick. If L.J. Collier, a late first-round draft choice defensive lineman on a team with bad defensive linemen, if he can't contribute in either year one or year two, John Schneider, Pete Carroll, they get they get blamed. It's a bad pick. It's a whiff. Totally agree. Yep. It's a total whiff. All right, three guests, good guests. We'll start with the head coach of Texas Tech, who was Jordan Brooks's head coach Great. in his final year. We'll find out all about that young man, episode number 89. Joining us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline is the president of Zeke's Pizza, Dan Black. Dan, how's everything going at Zeke's? Things are going well. Seattle has discovered that they can get beer delivered to their doorstep and that Zeke's is the best at it. You know, we're doing quite a bit better than we would have expected this time when all this stuff hit. Talk to us about that. What makes what you guys do so different than everybody else? You know, we're known for having one of the best beer lineups in the Northwest uh, and not just for a pizza place, just, you know, one of the best beer lineups, period. And, um, you know, we've delivered beer for a while. It's always been popular. One of the things that has happened during all this is that the Liquor Control Board loosened some restrictions so we can actually deliver draft beer now. Uh, that great beer lineup is something that is now accessible to everybody in Seattle to get delivered to their door and has just been extremely popular, you know, to the point where we've almost run the Northwest out of growlers at this point. And so um, we feel fortunate that Again, when we talked last time, we were going to rally around our delivery and takeout business, and that's what's happened. And um, our position in beer has just turbocharged all of that. Hey, Dan, how about the faces on healthcare workers across the Northwest as we continue to deliver Zeke's Pizza as a small thank you? No, I, I got to tell you, I'm glad you brought that up because that is 
been the coolest thing going through all of this. I mean, of course, we feel fortunate to, um, again, have enough business to rally through. Um, there's been a lot of places worse off than us, but I will tell you that the thing that has got our stoke going the most here, Mitch, is all the stuff that you've been doing. We get turbocharged on all the picks that you've been sending around, and we just feel we feel a overwhelming sense of community, and it's really cool. You're the one being generous and thoughtful here, but we feel really good that we're playing a part in it. It's been really cool for us over here, so we appreciate it. So if anybody wants to order some pizza and beer for themselves or if they want to order some pizza and send it to a healthcare worker or a friend or a loved one, remind everybody the two or three ways that they can do that, Dan. The best way is the app. It's really easy. It's going to ask you for an email and a password, but after that you have pizza and beer at your fingertips for the rest of your life, so the app is definitely the best way to go. Online at Zeke'sPizza.com is good. If you do want to talk to a really great crew member that will be super helpful, 206-285-8646 will get it done. We love Zeke's Pizza, always have, and their beer, homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. With the 27th pick in the 2020 NFL Draft, the Seattle Seahawks select Jordan Brooks, linebacker, Texas Tech. Jordan Brooks just forced a fumble. Brooks has it down to the West Virginia 30-yard line. Well, it seems like an eternity ago already. The Seahawks failed to trade down on Thursday night in the first round of the draft and instead surprised a few people by grabbing Jordan Brooks, the tackling machine middle linebacker out of Texas Tech. And here's his coach, Matt Wells, on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline. Coach, thanks and great to chat with you. And I hope all is well with you guys down in Texas. Yeah, thank you very much. At the end of the day, Jordan will be judged by the plays he makes or doesn't make on the football field like everybody else. But it's hard not to begin, Coach, with the discussion of the character of the young man and how his tough early experiences kind of shaped him. Yeah, certainly uh, an upbringing that is, uh, was difficult for him. I don't know all the details of it, just what he's kind of shared. Um, but, uh, you know, to see the reaction on uh, Jordan's face last night around his family, you can tell real quick what his why is. And um, that's a chip that he has on his shoulder. I think it's pretty big. He's a grinder. He's a worker, and he wants to make people proud. He's on, he's on a mission to take care of his family, and um, they are the why. I know you were only around him for one year. What was it like to coach a kid like this? You've been around football for a long time. You've had lots of kids come in and out of different programs. What was it like to coach Jordan Brooks for the year? Yeah, you know, there's a, I have a lot of respect for Jordan. You know, we came in as a new coaching staff with a brand-new scheme on defense, and, and here he is going into his senior year. Um, you know, and, and honestly, the the real talk of the story is Jordan wasn't um, in kind of maybe because of how he grew up, wasn't real quick to embrace us. Um, and that's not a negative. That's real. Hmm. That's not a negative. He finally bought into Keith Patterson, our defense coordinator and linebacker coach, and Dave Schultz, the, the strength coach. And 
Jordan changed his body. He gained weight. He lowered his body fat percentage by two percentage points. He really allowed, you know, his defensive coordinator to really coach him hard, to strain him, um, to really uh, change the way he thought about the game and prepared for the game. And, um, and so Jordan came a long ways in one year and played his best ball his senior year. And uh, I'm proud of him. And, you know, the, the opportunity for him to go learn um, just in the organization um, with Seattle, I have a tremendous amount of respect. We've had some Utah State players there that have done very well. Um, and he's going to get to come in and learn from one of the best to ever play the game yeah. at linebacker there in Bobby. And so I'm excited for Jordan to be able to just see Bobby, who I believe is a pro's pro, uh, the way he handles his business, the way he eats and trains and takes care of his body and and all those kind of things that'll be uh, perfect for Jordan what an opportunity for Jordan Brooks at six feet 240 coach it's funny you mentioned Bobby and you have obviously ties to the Utah State program we'll get there in a moment but I think I heard somebody say that Jordan reminds them on the football field the way he plays of Bobby Wagner this is going back to last week before this choice came to fruition yeah and and I want to make sure my quote is correct uh by no means is Jordan Brooks the next Bobby Wagner. That's not fair to either one of them. Bobby Wagner's a, what, seven or eight-time Pro Bowl guy, nine, whatever the number is. It's going to be on the, he's on the all-decade team. Bobby Wagner's a pro's pro, and that's not, that's, that's not fair. So let's, don't put that on me. I didn't say that. Okay. But there are some physical characteristics that are very similar, and they do play similar. And I saw them at the exact stage of both of their careers. I got a chance to go to Utah State as an assistant, Bobby's senior year, and then obviously came in here for Jordan's senior year. So I saw them at the same stage. Both guys played as true freshmen, did not redshirt. Jordan has shown the ability this year to change his body a little bit. Bobby uh, got bigger and stronger as he got into the league. Uh, like those second, third, and fourth years, if I remember right, on Bobby, he really he gained some strength and he got bigger and thicker. Potentially, I think Jordan could too, but Jordan plays, uh, he runs. He can run. He can chase the football. He can tackle in space. And um, so I think there are some – and, and, and they're similar size. So I think there's some similarities in the characteristics there physically. Everybody's still talking about, Coach, that October Saturday versus Oklahoma State. 19 tackles, three sacks, tackles for losses. Have you been around a better individual defensive performance in all the years you're around the sport, Coach? That certainly ranks up there. You got. You better remember that, you know, while I was an assistant at Utah State, Bobby Wagner was a senior. Bobby Wagner played some really good games that year. Both Vigil brothers, Zach Vigil and Nick Vigil, Nick still in the league. Uh, they had some tremendous individual performances. Um, that were about that many tackles. And Kyler Fackrell, a guy that plays for the Giants, all those guys played at Utah State. I've, I've seen some really good linebacker plays, certainly the three TFLs and 19 tackles against Oklahoma State, helping us be the top 25 program that day um, was certainly a huge performance for Jordan Brooks. And um, I think he'd probably tell you the same thing. You know, I hear you talking about him, and I watch the videos and I read the clippings. And on one hand, I see – Great tackler, maybe the best in the draft. Real fast, sideline to sideline. Some of the highlights really just jump off at me. 
And yet, on the other hand, other people say second or third round talent. And maybe I just don't understand how could you do better of a combo as a linebacker than being a great tackler and being fast sideline to sideline? I don't get it. Well, I don't need it. If y'all don't like him, I'll take him back. <laughs> so tell our audience about the scheme that you guys play at Texas Tech and maybe more importantly, how playing in the wide open Big 12 might help prepare Jordan Brooks for Sundays in the NFL. Yeah, we're an odd front. Um, he obviously played the mic where he relates to number three a lot. Has to play in space. You know, we uh, became our fourth blitzer often, and he was a good blitzer, and he pressures very well. He also spied a lot, and so we played a tremendous amount of athletic quarterbacks in the Big 12. Also played one at Arizona out of the league, and uh, oftentimes in coverage we had to use him as a spy because of his ability to run. If he could snap his fingers or a coach could snap his fingers, and maybe this is a little bit of an uncomfortable, awkward question, but I'll ask it anyway. If he could snap his fingers or a coach could snap his fingers and he could be better right now in one area of his game, it would be what, would you say? Oh, I think just learning how to prepare uh, consistently every day. Um, The way he watches tape, uh, the way he, you know, just in trying to be a pro's pro, I think that was um, a little different for him this year. And I think he really responded well. I do think he's got more of that in him, which is why I'm excited for him to sit right there and watch Bobby, how Bobby prepares for training camp and, and each game week and, uh, you know, not only mentally but physically as well, how he practices and lifts and takes care of his body and all that. So I think that's one game, one part of Jordan's game that has improved since we're, we've had him, but yeah. I also think he's got more room there. How about coverage skills, Coach? Yeah, a little bit limited because of our scheme this year, I think you saw him or scouts and coaches have seen him a little bit more in the previous scheme before we got here, but he can run, he can flip his hips. And, you know, I think um, John and Pete know what they're doing there in Seattle with linebackers. Right. They have drafted and coached some really, really good ones. So uh, let's give those guys the benefit of the doubt. I think they'll do well uh, with, uh, with Jordan Brooks. One more last, uh, one last question uh, about Brooks, and I want to ask you about the other Jordan who you had at Utah State, and we'll let you go. You know, the Seahawks have been a successful franchise. You just pointed it out for years and years. They're always in the mix. They're always in the playoff mix. Sometimes they're in the Super Bowl. Sometimes they even win the Super Bowl. But this is a defense that statistically and to the eye has struggled in the last couple of years and needs playmakers. And when they decided to draft Jordan at 27 overall, a lot of people echoed my sentiment, Coach. They said, hey, yeah, he might be the successor someday to Bobby Wagner, but Bobby Wagner's not ready for the showers just yet. And the 27th, no. and the 27th overall pick has got to, on this defense that has struggled, find a way to get on the football field. So where does he play? What outside spot do you think he would most fit in if they were trying to get him on the field on first downs in the first week of the regular season in 2020? God willing, we all play football, Coach. Yeah, I I, I can't answer that for you. I don't know their depth. I don't know everything about the ins and outs of their scheme, but I think if I was Seattle, I'd probably trust John Schneider and Coach Pete Carroll. They have done it at a high level. They're very aware of of their strengths and I'm sure their challenges on both sides of the ball. 
they have done a tremendous job at a high level for a long time. But, so but I you would, don't uh, but, defer to them. But you don't doubt that he could play outside linebacker for a while in the NFL. I think he could play. I, I think he could play a lot of spots, but okay. where he fits on their defense, I think that's that's okay. better. You should ask those guys. Let me go back to Thursday with you because it was an interesting ten or fifteen uh-huh. or twenty minutes for you, right? Back-to-back picks. Your old quarterback at Utah State, the Packers jumped up. Everybody's been talking about that, how a team with Aaron Rodgers would jump up to take Jordan Love, your old quarterback, and then right after it, the other Jordan goes. So that must have been a proud 15 or 20 minutes in the world of Matt Wells. It really was. In our sport of football, most of us are, you know, our our kind of one of our themes here at Texas Tech is we, us, and our. And everything's about we and us, but you you asked. I mean, that's an individual, yeah, just because you've had a little bit to do with a little bit of their success. And, and it's not so much, it's not me, it's not the guy that coached them. David Yost, who my offense coordinator coached Jordan uh, for three years at Utah State, and, and Keith just this year, Patterson, our D coordinator. But, man, we're so proud of both of those guys. And I think um, personal satisfaction and, and happiness for them, but – just knowing their family situations and how those families have changed. That's a life changing deal. And to see those two kids um, really uh, different for Jordan, because we, you know, inherited him here at Texas tech for one year, but I do believe he played his best ball this year and and what he did in in the weight room and, and at linebacker, I think he got so much better, but you know, Jordan love was a kid. I got to sit in that living room that I saw the, the celebration in. And so yeah, I take a lot of pride in that because I think it, it also stamps the development part of your program, and we're priding ourselves on that here at Texas Tech. And, and that's uh, two guys, two different positions, same strength coach, same program here. I think they're, they're developmental kids, and I think which, which I mean are kids with talent, but they play their better ball. And I think both of them, I think their better ball is still ahead of them. When did you first realize when you were walking around? I know he didn't have the greatest senior year, but throw that out for a, ma- a minute because you, you weren't even there. But when were you walking around, or maybe you're going to tell me in high school where you were watching this kid throw the ball around and saying to yourself, wow, this, this, this guy's going to play on Sunday someday? Come on, man. Ain't nobody said that to him in high school, including me. <laughs> so when did you realize it for the first time? I'm, I'm, I'm probably about halfway through his sophomore year. I think we all got uh, – I think we got a taste of it when he was a redshirt freshman. I certainly think that, uh, you know, he turned some heads, including all of ours, really, in the performance in East Lansing, opening game of the year 2018, which was his sophomore year. When we went in there and went toe-to-toe with Michigan State, did not win, but Jordan played tremendous. And then just as the year went on and some of the throws he made and, and how he progressed, um, I knew right then – He's going to play in the NFL. This guy's a draft pick, easy. And he's a high-end draft pick. First, second, third, fourth, you don't know. I think um, some of the feedback I heard of him at the Senior Bowl, and then certainly uh, he had a tremendous showing at the Combine. I think that's when um, you feel his stock rising. Well, I'm really happy for those kids, and I'm really happy for you and your coaching staff. Texas Tech Thank one you. year in. I, I really appreciate you jumping on the podcast and talking about two of these yeah. young men. You're going uh, to have a lot more. I sense that you're going to have a lot more of these guys on both sides of the football jumping into the NFL from Texas Tech over the next few years. So good, good luck with the continued uh, work there in Lubbock and, and all the best to you and your family, Coach. 
Yeah, thank you. I sure appreciate it. Well, we're so proud of Bobby Wagner, I can tell you that. We are Seahawks fans. My family is. <laughs> um, and so couldn't be more proud to, to have another guy go into that organization. Great organization. Thank you, Coach. Okay, have a great day. There's Texas Tech head football coach Matt Wells. He had Seahawks first-round pick linebacker Jordan Brooks last year and some guy named Bobby Wagner his senior season at Utah State. Interesting. Where would Mitch Unfiltered be without partners like Daniels Broiler? Not very far is the answer. And you don't need me to tell you that we must support local businesses and families like the Schwartz family during these times. It's vital. The same family that owns and operates Daniels also has Schwartz Brothers Bakery and Brenner Brothers Bakery, known since 1903 for their traditional bagels and rye bread. Founded in 1973 to make pies and other desserts for their restaurants, Schwartz Brothers Bakery now offers a delicious selection of the fresh breads, bagels, dinner rolls, hamburger hot dog buns, as well as pastries like cinnamon rolls and coffee cake and Danish, and so much more at QFC, Fred Meyer, Safeway, Albertsons, Metropolitan Market, PCC, and other local supermarkets. For a limited time, you can also find Schwartz Brothers Bakery, frosted shortbread cookies, and lemon bars at select Costco warehouses. Schwartz Brothers and Brenner Brothers, proud to continue to provide the community with bread and essential baked goods during these challenging times. It allows them to keep many of their team members employed and look forward to the day when Daniel's Broiler locations can reopen and those valuable team members can come back to work. Daniel's Broiler, Schwartz Brothers Bakery, and Brenner Brothers Bakery, staples of the Northwest community forever. Unfiltered. Welcome to the 2020 NFL Draft. It's now my honor to announce that the first ever virtual NFL Draft is officially open. The Cincinnati Bengals are on the clock. With the first pick in the 2020 Draft, the Cincinnati Bengals select Joe Burrow, quarterback, LSU, with the fifth pick in the 2020 NFL Draft. The Miami Dolphins select Tua Tungavaloa, quarterback, Alabama. With the 26th pick in the 2020 NFL Draft, the Green Bay Packers select Jordan Love, quarterback, Utah State. By the time this episode 89 is out, the NFL Draft edition of Football Morning in America will be released, available, and a must-read I don't think anyone does it better than our next guest. Here's Peter King. Hey, Peter, how'd you enjoy the draft? How do we find you? Well, uh, Mitch, I'm, I'm here in my apartment in Brooklyn, and everybody is well. Good. Uh, family is good. Everything's going fine. And uh, I love the draft. You know, normally I'm either at a team, with a team, like in a draft room or something like that, um, or just covering a team on this weekend. And – I miss that. I think I've done it every year since about 1988, if I'm not mistaken. So I miss that part of it because I find it so much fun. But the reason I really liked this draft this year is because of how unusual it was, how different it was, and how I thought the NFL really made chicken salad out of chicken feathers. 
I remember you and I sitting together in Mike Holmgren's Kirkland War Room the year that he and his staff selected Corn Robinson and Steve Hutchinson later (laughs) in that first round. I don't know if you remember that. There was a young guy in there that was on that staff named John Schneider, and now he's doing what he's doing. Um, Was that the storyline? Was the number one storyline of the 2020 draft just kind of the modest, unique, human way that it was yeah. presented given the world's problems? And already people are asking for more in the upcoming years, in, more of that. In my column, Mitch, I basically compare what the draft would have been like in Las Vegas and what the draft actually was like, you know, in the corona real world. And and look, it's not the real world, but it's it, – just imagine how much you saw of people's real lives. You saw Joe Burrow's living room yeah. in, you know, right outside of Athens, Ohio. Uh, you know, you see Bill Belichick in his kitchen on Nantucket feeding treats to his mini Husky. It just, there were so many things that you got to see that never in a million years would you have ever seen on national TV. I talked to Joe Douglas, the new GM of the, uh, of the jets. And you know, because I thought, I mean, I've known Joe for a while and I thought this is his first draft. He's going to be really uneasy with being out of his comfort zone for this gigantically important moment uh, in jets history and in his history. And he said, you know, he said, I really love this. It was totally unintended, unintended consequences, but I love being with my family. He said to me that normally every year for the draft, the hours are so long and you get home and your family's all asleep. And then you leave the next morning before, uh, you know, your family's around and you don't really talk to them. But I shared this incredibly important moment in my life with my family. Yeah. And he said, it, he said, quite honestly, it was awesome. And look, I think that even the people who were skeptical about it, like Mickey Loomis, uh, the Saints GM, who he was on my podcast a couple of weeks ago saying, I think they ought to push the draft back, which caused Roger Goodell to say, if anybody else says anything, I'm going to fine him. And we all thought our, Roger Goodell was an autocratic ninny. But what what ended up happening is that he looked right. Yeah. You know, he didn't want to appear so tone deaf in front of America. Everybody shut up. The draft went off. I've talked to eight general managers in the 24 hours or whatever it is, um, you know, since the middle of the draft, as we record the middle of the, the uh, uh, rounds four, five, and six, or four, five, six, and seven. And every single one of them has something to say that is in the neighborhood of, I really thought this was great. So that's nice. You know, Mitch, I just think it's one of those things that appeared to be horrible for a while, but then you get into it and say, this was really kind of a great thing. Let's talk about some of the national NFL headlines of the draft, football related headlines of the draft. Green Bay got a lot of ink going up to get the quarterback when they've got Aaron Rodgers still seemingly in his prime. What'd you make of that whole situation, Peter? It's funny. I talked to Brian Gutekunst, the general manager of the Packers, and I said this to him, Mitch. I said, if we had talked Thursday night, because not that I know him well, but 
he's one of these guys. He wants you to tell tell him what you think, you know, because he wants to have a real discussion. I said on Thursday night, I would have said, man, I really think you made a mistake here. But I've thought about it a lot in the last couple of days. And Mitch, even though I probably would have sat right where I was and at 30 where the Packers were and maybe taking a Michael Pittman or one of the really good receivers after the first rung of receivers went in the first round. But if you're Brian Gutekunst and you saw, you know, you sat in meetings when Ron Wolf talked about being a steward for the franchise and you watched Ted Thompson draft Aaron Rodgers, even though Favre had a few years left, seemingly, he knew that the most important thing for us is to make sure that we are insured at the, at the quarterback position. And, and I asked him, what happens if Rodgers plays great for the next four years? And he goes, great for the Packers. We have an insurance policy. And uh, the more I've thought about it, I, I still think that they made a mistake in not getting a wide receiver, but it's hard to fault his logic. He's got to be concerned about the Packers and, 2028 and not just for the next two or three years don't you think that if you're a betting man now you would say that Aaron Rodgers will not begin and end his career in Green Bay yeah I would say yes but but remember one thing remember one thing if he keeps playing great Gutekunst all but said this basically that it's in Aaron's hands if he keeps playing great he stays our quarterback I get the feeling this is a guy who they for like maybe the the 10 picks before they they picked that he was the number one player on their board and they kept mm-hmm. saying we got to try to go get this guy. I think that I think that's really how it happened, but again, Mitch, I think we all look at that and we say, how would you feel if it, you're Aaron Rodgers and in the last 6 drafts you've never drafted a receiver in the first 3 rounds. You look at the 49ers and they draft receivers almost every year. They had Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, and, and all these guys. And I'd be frustrated if I were Rodgers, yeah, no question. Yeah. If I had asked you on Thursday, what are the chances that Green Bay moves up in the first round to get a quarterback and the Patriots don't draft one at all in three days, you would have said what to me, Peter? Oh, the Packers thing is much more incredible to me. I never thought that Bill Belichick is only taking a quarterback if he truly likes him. And – as he said after round seven, he basically said we had our eye on a few guys and it didn't work out. So that's what I think happened with the Patriots. They were looking for one. They had their eye on a couple, and it just didn't didn't materialize. Mm-hmm. But I do think that they still will be in the market for a quarterback. Um, I'm you know look, I've been saying it for probably two months. I'll just be curious what happens with Andy Dalton. I think he fits the the two-year window in New England type of quarterback, but they're not going to have any interest in him if he if they have to pay him $17 million. If he's going to get very realistic and want to play maybe this year and next year for $5 million or something, they'd probably want him. Yeah, but, yeah. Mitch, the one other thing that nobody's really talking about, I really get a sense that – the economics of football have changed a year ago. If somebody had said, Hey, you know, you could get a good one year insurance policy with Andy Dalton for 17 million, which is what he's on the books for. I don't think there's anybody in the NFL who 
even if they thought he'd start for him this year, would pay Andy Dalton $17 million. I might be wrong, but I think that's had a lot to do with Jadavian Clowney, for instance. Yeah. People like him, yeah. but I think they like him at $14 million. They don't like him at $21 million. Yeah. You think he's coming back to Seattle while you're on the subject? Yeah, I think so. I think that probably gives them the best chance because, look, this was the weekend to sort of ferret out the interest in who might want him. I never heard his name once all weekend. So, Hmm. you know, I don't know. And then again, I hadn't heard Jameis Winston's name. And now apparently, you know, he's obviously close to a deal with the Saints. So it's, you know, that's a very weird it's a very weird part of this story that I've got to start looking into in the next few days that it just seems that nobody is paying free agents like they did a year ago. Peter, I know you have deadlines. I know you've got a very busy day. Let me throw some quick hitters at you and let you go. Yep. Okay. Uh, I've always giggled at draft grades, even though I read them. Who the heck knows, right? Who the heck knows? Was there a team or two that you thought took a major step forward? Peter. In my opinion, I thought what the 49ers did was great. Everything has to be taken in perspective. But they found out a few days ago that Joe Staley was going to retire. So they now had an urgent need for a tackle instead of just a need for a tackle. And look, you got to take them at their word. I, I'm sure that they wouldn't be lying about this, but They ended up getting the number one receiver on their board. That's what they've called Brandon Ayuk. They got basically a free fourth-round draft pick from Tampa that allowed them to, uh, you know, to trade up a little bit later. And they still got Javon Kinlaw at a position they had desperate need in. So I look at if I'm John Lynch, I wake up the morning of the draft and I say, okay, I need a tackle, I need a wide receiver, and I need a defensive tackle far and away. Those are my three biggest needs. And to me, he got playoff caliber players at each one of those positions. The Dolphins, my Dolphins, they're taking Herbert. They're trading up for an offensive lineman. They're trading down. They don't like Tua anymore. And then they pick Tua. Seems like all that was nonsense. And they drafted a million other guys. Do you think Tua will play this year or do they hold him out of here? They redshirt him a year. I think Brian Flores, remember last year, Mitch, when when they acquired Josh Rosen, they basically acquired Josh Rosen, and Brian Flores shrugged his shoulders and said, hey, let the best quarterback win. And so Ryan Fitzpatrick and Josh Rosen went at it. Fitzpatrick had a cold spell. They put in Rosen. Rosen was lousy. They put Fitzpatrick back in, and they started winning, and then they never played Rosen again. So – In my opinion, that's what they'll do. Brian Flores is not the kind of guy who in practice will have, you know, open competition and then do something in opposition to what that open competition has told him. So in my opinion, he will play the best quarterback. And as soon as uh, he thinks that that Tua is that, he's going to start playing. I wouldn't I wouldn't eliminate the prospect of him playing opening day, but I have no idea. I just know the way Brian Flores operates. If I were writing football, let's call it football Mitch in America instead of football morning in America, I would dedicate a section, because I'm interested in this, 
on the reaction by the AFC West teams, in particular the Raiders and Broncos, to the Chiefs' high-scoring Super Bowl champion. They're the Raiders. They took three wide receivers, Peter, in the first three rounds. First time in 38 years that that's happened. And the Broncos, John Elway drafted all kinds of offensive toys for Drew Luck so that they can try to catch up. These teams are trying to catch up offensively. They can, they can score with the Kansas City Chiefs, right? You read my mind because I talked to John Elway Friday night after the draft about, I said, you have turned your team into a must-see team. You know, look at, look at all the weapons. Philip Lindsay and Melvin Gordon in the backfield. Drew Lockett, quarterback. Now, the jury's very much still out on him, but he looked pretty good last year. Noah Fant, the first-round receiver, tight end. Two prime targets uh, at wide receiver now in Jerry Judy and uh, and Cortland Sutton. That is a wild, wild change over a two-year period with the Denver Broncos. Amazing. It's amazing how they've done it. And Elway said to me, we're in the Chiefs division. You know, if we don't do this, you look and see, last year, Kansas City did not have a great defense. Denver scored nine points in two games against Kansas city. Mm -hmm. So John Elway knew this year that what he was going to do first, second, and third is offense, 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 explosion, explosion, explosion. And that's why they drafted the way they did. Do you like the Jalen hurts pick in Philadelphia, Peter? Love the Jalen hurts. Do you think of this 53rd pick in the draft? You got a quarterback who's had two significant injuries. In Carson Wentz, this is not about the fact that they don't think Carson Wentz is their quarterback of the future. This is about the fact that they think that Jalen Hurts can be a factor even if Wentz plays every game for the next 10 years. But it's also about just the fact that now they think they're going to they're have a real chance to be a playoff team if they have to play their backup quarterback. And – you know, obviously they caught lightning in a bottle in that way with Foles, but they didn't have that guy last year. So that prompted what they did there. Did I see bouquets throwing your way for your mock draft? Did I notice some scuttlebutt that Peter King had one of the best mock drafts in all the National Football League? Did I see that Which right? Surpri- <laughs> you should have. I mean, I had I had ten guys right in the in the right slots, and I had eleventh guy who. Uh, went to the team who drafted him, the Miami uh, tackle from USC, Austin Jackson. I just picked him in the wrong slot. Yeah, I mean, I'm so surprised by that because a week ago I was heart sick because I was going to make a total fool of myself with the mock draft. And then, you know, hey, you just maybe maybe being nervous about something and really working at it ends up helping you in the end, but – I'll be honest with you, Mitch. I have to thank a bunch of uh, pretty good sources around the NFL who I've been doing this with for a few years. And it's not me. It's just them and me sort of mining information with them. Well, there's nobody who does it better. And let me tell you, everybody, I can't wait as I record this with him. I haven't seen it because he hasn't finished it yet. But I can't wait for football morning in America. It is especially the draft edition. They're all great, but the draft edition is always fantastic. So the pressure's on. Get that thing out and get that thing in my hand. I love you, Peter. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it very much. Hey, thanks so much, Mitch. Have a great week.
the terrific Peter King, whose must-read Football Morning in America draft column is out now. On the phone with Jordan Flowers of the Kirkland office, the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage. I know it's a strange and scary time, Jordan. You guys are open, right? You're an essential business? Mitch, that is correct. We are an essential business, being the financial sector, housing sector, and we are all still fully operational, my entire uh, staff and team, whether we're working from home or uh, socially distancing ourselves and locking ourselves in the offices. We're all still working and serving our clients here. Opportunities for our our listeners that want to look at either purchase or refinance. I know it's uh, the last thing on a lot of people's minds right now, but for those that are thinking about it, what can they find at the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage? Opportunities are still great, both for refinancing and buying. The Fed is committed to keeping rates low throughout uh, this pandemic, as well as long after to ensure a full, robust recovery. Definitely opportunities right now on home buying uh, as far as a decent amount of inventory hitting the market and potentially getting good deals there. For anybody that currently does not own and has been thinking about it, we're happy to run uh, rent versus own calculators for you and see kind of what your tax liabilities are and also the financial benefits of owning a home, whether primary or investment property. If we're in the market or we're in the market for a refi, we should look at our numbers on our outstanding loan, our current loan. What should we be looking for? What numbers are available to us through you guys? Absolutely. I'd say anybody right now that's considering refinancing, we're taking care of uh, clients removing their mortgage insurance. We are helping people with cash out refinances to consolidate debt or do home improvements. Really anything in the high threes to low fours and above certainly would would be of interest in taking a look at what refinance numbers look like for them right now. Jordan, what about all the people out there that are having trouble making their payments during this insanity? So with that stimulus package, the CARES Act, they are allowing customers to apply for forbearance if they qualify up to six months and then extend to 12. What they need to know, there's there's information on the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau website, the CFPB website, as well as um, they need to be reaching out to their servicers to figure out what they are eligible for if they need to. If they can make their mortgage payments, they need to keep doing that. Uh, but as a last case, solution for anybody that's hit by these times. Um, There are options for them, but they need to understand what those options are. They're not getting their debt wiped out or forgiven. It's simply moving the payments, and they need to understand that. 425-250-3150. That's 425-250-3150. Jordan Flowers' team, the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage. Unfiltered. Lopez and Alex Rodriguez are hoping to hit a home run with their latest business venture. The power couple has teamed up with J.P. Morgan Chase to raise capital for a possible bid on the New York Mets. The pair is said to be working with managing director Eric Metal, who serves as the company's co-head of North American Media Investment Banking. The Wilpon family are the current owners of a major league baseball team. In December, they announced plans to sell up to 80% of the Mets in a deal that valued the organization at 2.6 billion interesting news out of new york that has captured headlines episode 89 continues alex rodriguez and jennifer lopez interested in being part of a group to buy the new york mets 
Thornton McHenry is a business writer for the New York Post and is on the Zeke's Pizza hotline. Thornton, thanks for being with us on Mitch Unfiltered. Our thoughts out here are with you and New Yorkers during this awful time. Hope you and your family are okay. We are, and it's Seattle too. You guys, you guys have been through the brunt of it too. I hope, I hope everyone there is doing great. We're doing all right. I, I'd imagine in a day and age where sports and everything else is on pause, that you guys are having fun with this one. What's uh, what's yeah. been the reaction in uh, in New York to to A Rod and, and Jennifer Lopez? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's been a nice distraction. Uh, the story it's, it has uh, sort of a, you know a lot of elements to it. A Rod's you know New York character now. Um, we actually broke. I broke the story in February uh, before the world changed that he was interested and at the time it sort of seemed impossible uh it's the the numbers just didn't really work and no one knew who he was going to partner with the joke at the time was that maybe he'd use jennifer lopez's money um (laughs) but uh he has it turns out found a partner um if if not more than one and they are putting together what appears to be a pretty serious bid they want to be considered uh for this and the one part of this that does snap us back to reality, unfortunately, is that the Mets now uh, are a lot cheaper if they were going to make a deal now because uh, of the pet, the pandemic and what that's sort of done to the baseball season. So why wouldn't the Wilpons then hold on and their minority owners and just wait until the coast clears, for lack of a better expression? The Wilpons are in, if not the worst financial position in Major League Baseball, our understanding definitely in the lowest tier and they're pretty close to the bottom um it'd be them or the marlins uh they are just not well capitalized they had a lot of debt when they built city field uh they also got involved uh Fred Wilpon was childhood friends with Bernie Madoff. Yep. Uh, he gave Bernie some money, and then and it turned out that the Mets actually owed money to the victims because they got their money out so early. It's a very convoluted story there and worth mm-hmm. Googling if you're interested <laughs> in something sordid. They, they basically have been in the hole for a long time, and we think our, our numbers show on a good year the Mets can lose $60 million on baseball operations. In a season like this, those numbers would go into the nine digits. Uh, and the thing about the Mets is they do tend to break even if they can as an organization on SNY, which is the local sports network. It's their regional sports network, the Mets' own uh, controlling interest in. So that's sort of what's happening. And right now, uh, if, the, if, if half a season were to be played, if Major League Baseball got the gates open and got people in for some, you know, starting in ju- late June, July, it would be worse for the Mets than if the season was canceled. Because if the season was canceled, there might be a way for everyone to be made whole or figure out a, some sort of sharing agreement for everyone to sort of walk away. But if there's half a season and there's a prorated player salary situation sure. and they're never going to fill the stadium, no no stadiums are going to be filled, we don't think, in the wake of this, then they're looking at a real cash flow problem. They've tried to sell the team for the last couple months, and uh, this seems to be the, the, the newest iteration of this deal. What would be involved in the deal? The stadium? Would the, would the And I know this is a big part of the story. Would the television network that makes all the money uh, be part of the deal? Or would the Wilpons want to hold on to that? Well, our understanding is they want to hold on to the network. That, that sort of, they've told anyone now, that sort of has gone back and forth. The, so really, to really go back to the story, how it's sort of played out, in December, uh, there was a deal in place with a very high-powered hedge fund manager in New York City, which is actually how I came on came onto the story. Since I'm not a sports reporter, there was a hedge fund reporter named Steve Cohen, who's a very successful hedge fund guy, who's a lifelong Mets fan, who actually owns eight percent of the Mets, and he put a deal in place with them for 2.6 billion dollars to take an 80 percent control the interest of the team that didn't include SNY 
but for a number of reasons, they're very sorted, very strange, very you know tr- problematic in terms of negotiations. That deal fell apart sort of at the eleventh hour, and uh, I think a lot of people inside the Mets organization are kicking themselves now because our understanding is without SNY, uh, the team is worth maybe half of what Cohen was willing to spend, uh, and whoever buys the team without SNY will have to pay off debts for years. There's there's a hole you'll be throwing money into before you can break even. Uh, so that's sort of what's happening here. So whoever buys the team is going to have to have enough capital and be comfortable with sort of, you know, riding out a pretty dark, a dark period. Uh, and the question is, who are uh, J-Rod, as we call them in New York, who are they allied with to, that has that kind of cash? And the answer to that question is? Uh, right now, a guy named Wayne Rothbaum, who's a pretty, uh, this is a pretty vanilla character. He's a biotech investor uh, from Long Island. Uh, he splits his time between New York and Florida. He's a billionaire. I mean, he's the kind of guy who doesn't really, you know, he's purposely, you don't know how much he's worth. Um, but uh, we can't we can't figure he's worth more than $2 billion right now. Uh, there might be some other liquidity we're not aware of. Uh, he tried to buy the Marlins a few years ago. He was one of the three competing groups. Uh, he was with Jeb Bush and one of Mitt Romney's sons. Um, they put together a bid. Uh, so he's been down this road before. Apparently he's motivated, but the idea is he would be the, what they call the controlling partner, Major League Baseball. You have one person who's the controlling partner who Major League Baseball deals with on everything. And he can have, you can have all the partners you want. You can have someone who's the face of your organization, like the Marlins are an example. Derek Jeter is the face of the Marlins, but the uh, controlling partner is a guy named Bruce Sherman. Wayne would want to be the controlling partner, and A-Rod and J-Lo would sort of be the face of the organization. He'd maybe, maybe he'd be the CEO of the Mets, uh, A-Rod. And JLo would run whatever city field entertainment or something. So that's, I think, the plan from our understanding is that's what maybe this deal would look like as of right now. It doesn't sound like they have enough money. A guy worth just a couple of billion. I know this sounds crazy, but a guy worth just a couple of billion these days to buy these professional sports franchises doesn't seem like that's enough money. That's A. And B, do, do we have any sense of you calling him J-Rod? What kind of financial stake do we think that J-Rod would have in any potential sale? Right now, the best we can assume, and people have spoken to us and said they think this is the plinking here behind it, people who are close to the deal, that it would really resemble the Jeter-Miami uh, thing, where people, you know, the, the Marlins were purchased for, I believe, $1.2 billion in 2016. Derek Jeter bought them, if you read the paper. Derek Jeter buys the Marlins. Derek Jeter put up $250 million of right. his own money right. uh, in that deal, and it was also, it has been allowed to sort of be the face. Our understanding also is that deal has not, that reality has not played out great, that Sherman is controlling partner, and Derek Jeter has not been given the room to control like he thought he would. And this, it would probably play out the same way, where people would come with money, and um, this group, this J-Rod group with Wayne Rothbaum, they've hired J.P. Morgan to hire uh, a lot, to find other people to bring in liquidity. And J.P. Morgan is a pretty <laughs> substantial investment bank with pretty well-heeled clients in New York. So the idea is they could put together a group of capital group that could make it happen. Um, right. But yeah, the idea that a Steve Cohen would have been ideal, the guy who's worth over $11 billion, would have been able to sort of make things you know, a little bit more kosher for, for the yeah, Mets in the yeah. short and long term. Listen, Thornton, the, the, the story of Alex Rodriguez here and in New York is well chronicled. 
what is his reputation? I mean, what are Yankee are Yankee fans chuckling about this? I mean, the, the one of the world's most valuable franchises is just across town in the Bronx, and here's a Mets yeah. organization that we don't know what it's worth. It's losing money hand over fist. It's a laughing stock in New York. How do New Yorkers feel about Alex Rodriguez, Jennifer Lopez, and this comical at, at times story? I think it's a very interesting sort of moment because, I mean, yeah, I mean, Yankees, well, Yankees fans chuckle at the Mets regardless of what they do. And as a Brooklyn-born Mets fan, uh, frankly, I'm sick of it. Uh, <laughs> but, um, no, I mean, I, I, he, is, he is synonymous with the Yankees. And uh, J-Lo's from the Bronx. So, you know, she's a Yankees fan, too. It's really two Yankees people coming in to uh, by the Mets, which is sort of funny. But, uh, I mean, I think the other part of this, though, is the other two sides of this, which if you're inside New York is very real, but maybe outside is hard to fathom. Them. The Mets fans are there's really an anybody but the Wilpons mentality at this point. I mean, the Mets Mets fandom by a large group is pretty much done with this ownership group. They've they've been I mean they've run the team. We've had high points, we've had low points, but the Wilpons essentially just cannot afford to run a big market baseball team, and they can't afford to get the players that Mets fans want. And as a big market city with the Yankees in town, Mets fans think they deserve. Um, so they want we there was an owner they they want an owner to come in with money. They want a big player or at least some flair. And J Lo and A Rod have flair. If they have money, that would be even better. Uh, but that's really the thinking right now. Um, and also, Alex Rodriguez has really done a pretty admirable job of reinventing himself in his retirement as a savvy businessman. As someone who covers Wall Street, I never thought I would spend the time I have in the last few weeks going through A-Rod's investments. But he's savvy, and he gets good advice, and I think he listens to the advice. And he's pulled off some pretty interesting deals. Um, he's got a whole real estate thing in Florida. He's invested early in some very impressive companies. I mean, A-Rod's... You know, might not be the, a lot of these guys claim to be businessmen. Arod seems to have some understanding, and he doesn't seem to get overextended. He seems to play, understand. He seems to understand his uh, his. What, what he, he knows he doesn't know is what I think he's done a good job. And he has to deal with Presidente Beer, which is a very popular Dominican beer brand on the East Coast. And, yeah, it's, uh, it, he's, he's done a pretty good job as a businessman. So I think all those things together, I think Mets fans are like, hey, why not? Uh, <laughs> let's see. Like, like, let's just someone should buy this team. Let's, let's try something new. If it's A-Rod and J-Lo, that sounds bizarre. But, hey, it could be worse. If they end up buying the team somehow, some way, would he then take an office? Would he forget the broadcasting career and all the other stuff and kind of pull a jeter? And, and, I think he'd and, have to. I think there's yeah. rules for that. Uh, I think he would have to. Uh, I think as the CEO of the Mets, I think he'd have to sort of really – and I think, you know, I think Mets fans would want him to focus on I think whoever uh, he goes in with, if they're going to put in billions of dollars, would want, I think, his full attention on the team um, and the organization. And the other thing about it is the Mets City Field is not really close to downtown New York. It's sort of in the, the, the far reaches of Queens. But the thing that the City Field does have is it's sort of a crux. It sort of sits at the – Junction of um, the city, Long Island, and Westchester, um, and there's a there's th- uh, the subway, and there's also a Long Island rail um, Long Island Railroad that goes through there. So the U.S. Open is played next door, and so the idea uh, we're hearing also is that J Lo would want to turn City Field into a concert destination. She'd want to get big acts. She'd want to make it more Madison Square Garden in New York is a yeah. big concert venue. Yeah. She'd want to make City Field into like the summer MSG is what we've been told. Just get, when the Mets aren't home, there will just be top-tier entertainment going on there. Uh, And hopefully you can attract people from that sort of tri-corner area of the city. So there's that. So they would sort of be, they would very much be a power couple is the the idea. So who's got more money in that household, Thornton? 
uh, I, all we keep saying are the are the valuations together, but uh, maybe maybe J Lo. It's, really? it's hard to see. Uh, yeah, I mean, who knows? I I don't really. I can't. There's, there, I don't think we have a look at their tax returns, but I think uh, that they both do very well. She's had a very successful career. Um, someone I recently asked me like, is it weird they don't have more money? And I was like, seven hundred million dollars for two people who you know have worked for really essentially worked for a living is pretty good. I mean, they people pay them for what they do. They not vice versa. The hedge fund guys, it's a different world. Those guys, those guys are playing the markets to their own tune. So they are the the amount of money they can bring in is different than if you're, you know, getting a contract for a baseball or for a baseball um, team, or if you're, you know, a movie star or albums or concerts. So I mean, I think yeah, I think we're thinking maybe close to eight hundred million dollars combined is their valuation, which is pretty impressive. I was impressed that Derek Jeter had two hundred and fifty million lying around to throw into the into the Florida Marlins. Well, Jeter, I don't think, has been very crazy with his money. It's, that's never been his idea. He made a good money. He I mean, his endorsements throughout the years. I think he did pretty well. But yeah, I mean, I think two hundred fifty million was probably a lot uh, for him. But I mean, I think it's worked out. If the Marlins can become an asset, although right now owning a baseball team is a rough business to be in, but long term, you know, that could that could work for him. Well, it seems like the moral to the story is that the Wilpons blew it with Steve Cohen. They had an outrageous deal on the table. I don't know why a, a successful hedge fund guy would overpay for the New York. Mets. I don't really follow that part of the story, but that was a deal the Wilpons should have had. I don't know exactly what happened. You say that it fell through late in the uh, late in the process, but that was the deal that the Wilpons should have done at the time. And they're probably everybody in the ownership group is probably kicking themselves, except for Steve Cohen. He's probably thrilled that he never made that deal. It's the best deal he ever um, made. Yeah, that's a very convoluted. I we covered. I covered that as closely as anybody, and I will tell you that uh, that story is really fascinating for a number of reasons. But mostly, I mean, he would. Steve Cohen was willing to overpay because he loves the Mets. I mean, he's a he's from Long Island. He, lo- he grew up a diehard Mets fan, and you know, he's made an incredible amount of money. Uh, and this is something I think he thought was a retirement idea, maybe. I mean, he was going to keep running his hedge fund, but I think eventually this is something he was going to do. And we've seen this. The owner of the Carolina Panthers is a New York area sure, hedge fund manager. Sure. who pretty David much Tepper, yeah. stopped taking out. Yeah, yeah. Dave Tepper. So um, I think maybe he saw that as his model. Um, but, yeah, Steve Cohen, I think, had this deal in place. He was going to pay an obscene amount of money. And eventually, I think maybe he thought when this, you know, the, the SNY contract ran out, he would pick that up in a decade or so. Uh, but what really happened there, from our understanding, is that there was sort of a strange – the Wilpons have done this before with other people who have tried to buy in. You can buy in, give us a lot of money, but we don't want your advice. We don't want your thoughts. Jeff, the son, runs the team. Uh, Jeff's not a very popular figure. He's a polarizing figure in New York. Cohen was told there will be a five-year window of transferring power of the team, uh, but year one you'll pay the most of the money, and then you know we'll figure something out. I think he thought that was a negotiation. The Wilpons apparently did not, and he was told sort of at the last minute, no, the five-year window is a – Dead. It's a dead thing. It's a, has, it's a concrete negotiation tactic for us. Jeff will run the team for five years after you own him. You won't be able to have any say into operations or players. And after five years, then you'll be able to learn how to run the team. And I think Cohen said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! That's 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 crazy." <laughs> I, 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 I'll Jeff can stick around and we'll work together, but I have to have some say if I'm going to put 2.6 billion in. And um, they sort of said no, and he said, "Okay, then I'm going to walk." And then they accused. Him of reframing. They accused him of, of bad blood. They somehow got Tony Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, to come out and slap Cohen on the wrist for acting in bad faith. Uh, at the time, we, we, there were some minority owners who we spoke to who said, yeah, they were not thrilled with the Wilpons, how that was handled. Um, it was a very ugly, ugly thing. And it was, I mean, it was on the, it was the front page of the papers in New York before, uh, before the pandemic. It was a big story. So 
yeah, it was a it was a wild thing to happen, and unfortunately, something that Mets fans kind of came to expect. It's not the first time that the Wilpons have had a deal in place to bring in money and sort of blown it by just asking for the moon uh, and and not getting it. Thornton McHenry, the business writer for the New York Post, uh, read his work and follow the story of the Mets' proposed sale to Jennifer Lopez and Alex Rodriguez, or the other way around. I guess if you're calling it J Rod, then we should go Jennifer Lopez and Alex Rodriguez. It's fun to, to to read your work and to follow this story from afar. And I wish you and your family and all the New Yorkers all the best from out here in Seattle. You too. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks for being with us, Thornton. We appreciate it very much. Have a good one. Thank you. Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez, serious about buying the New York Mets. Let's keep an eye on this one. Thornton McHenry, New York Post business reporter. Evergreen Golf Call, our buddies, obviously watching the markets very carefully as we inch closer to reopening the economy. The Evergreen Private Wealth Management Division been managing families' money for decades with the goal of comfortable retirements for people all over the world. I've had experiences with other firms that really only want to know, do you meet their minimum? Tyler Hayes' team is different in that respect. Their client compatibility survey at evergreengolfcall.com is one of several ways that Evergreen listens and understands your unique situation before even the first conversation with you. Everyone's risk tolerance, time horizon, investment preferences, different. Evergreen's wealth consultant gets that information ahead of time so that he or she can tailor make an approach and strategy that's perfect for you and your family's needs. There are even times that Evergreen reaches out to prospective clients to let them know that their investment philosophies just don't align, and that's okay. EvergreenGolfCall.com. It's a perfect place to start. Just click on its client compatibility survey and answer a few questions. No commitment, just a starting point. Evergreen Golf Call, a premier wealth manager in the Northwest and beyond. Unfiltered. Before we get into the other stuff segment and we finish out the show with... Naming rights, Dougie Fresh, episode 89. Do you have any thoughts? I know we talked a little bit this on the 88P episode, but I, I really, the more I think about it, the more I want to do over on this first ever Mitch Unfiltered Zoom teleconference. Is that what it's called, a teleconference? I think so, yeah. yeah. That's the right word. Why do you want to do over? I'm just not, I'm not comfortable with my performance and how smooth it went. I was distracted by a lot of things going on. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what buttons, the muting buttons, the letting people into the room. Yeah. I obviously didn't have it set up right or efficiently. And so I'm looking forward. I'm really thankful. There was a ton of people. We had a we had a full house. You know, we were only allowed 100. And I was looking up and I was seeing 99, 100, 99. We were wow. letting people in, That's letting great. them out, 99, 100. So we had, we had a full house for the freebie edition. I, maybe I'll go out and buy it now. But I would like a do-over. I would like to <laughs> do minute, it again. You want to buy it so you can add more people to confuse you even more? No, it wasn't the amount of people. <laughs> okay. It was just the overall program. And when I'm worried about pressing buttons, then I'm not telling the stories yeah. the right way. Distracted. I, I, I'm, I'm just yeah. not I'm not delivering the answers the way I want I, I want to do over. I thought and, you did a great job, though, if it matters. Really? I, yeah, I thought you did a great job. I, yeah, I knew you were kind of nervous. How's this going to go? Is it yeah. going to be weird and clunky? And I thought it was great. Do you think we could get away with doing, like, for patrons? Because I always want to give patrons a little bit more. They pay $5 a month. Yeah. How about a regular... I, I'm not saying it has to be every week or whatever, but how about a semi-regular patrons-only Zoom call 
first one in gets in. If I buy the program, then we can get more people, more of the patrons in. Maybe I even have guests. Yeah. Come on, and we do interviews on there. Just do like a show, kind of. Kind of, just like a segment, more like I could have Brady Henderson. Yeah. I could, we could have Seahawks guests, and we then could, they could ask him questions too. And either either type them in. Yeah. So that we have to figure out whether we want them talking. You or should type have them in. You should have the, the chat up at all times. See, I, I, the, there was no way I was so on overload about yeah. everything I was doing. I, that's what my wife said. You got to have the chat up. Yeah. There's, there's, but I couldn't do it all. I, I couldn't get into a groove. I couldn't get into any rhythm. But anyway. Uh, thank you to all that are listening right now that we're in our in our Zoom room. And I think if you're willing to do it, I think we should do it more regularly. Do some fun guesty stuff, Q&A stuff, whenever we have some some real big opinions about maybe a big sports event. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know. I was thinking the other night, and this is crazy, what if I did a Zoom call during a Seahawks game? Like we all watch the game together. Totally could do that. Just have it up for three hours. Just have it up. Yeah, we're all watching the game, and 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 on after plays or big moments, we talk a little bit about it. What if we did Love a it. Seahawks live Zoom chat during games? I I don't know. Maybe there's probably a lot of reasons why we shouldn't, but <laughs> a lot of reasons why we. Well, should. I don't know. I'm probably not thinking of something that may, oh, okay. that would make it stupid or not good because I'm just not. Well. People may not be able to go to games, so that might be the only chance we get to interact with fans. You know, they might be. Oh. it might be uh, empty yeah. stadiums. So he might be onto something. If nobody can go. A Zoom teleconference live during games where we all just shoot the shit. I like it. Okay. But then somebody will inevitably forget it on, forget it's on. They'll rip a big one or they'll go to the bathroom with their phone and forget well, it. Well, I can mute all. Can, oh, oh, but I can't mute all if everybody's going to talk. <laughs> yeah, three hours is a long time for a Zoom call, but it would be fun. It would be great. Or maybe we do it in the second half. Second half. Or maybe, in the yeah. fourth quarter. Right. No, I like when it. the game's on the line, or maybe we do it in the first half, and then we close it off at halftime. We let everybody enjoy the game without my schnoz. I, I don't know. <laughs> Best way to enjoy it. What do you got over there? Fred Somebody on Twitter not happy with uh, the Dukes uh, uh, of Hazard oh, losing. Oh, with us. Woo. Well, probably not. They're probably mad at us, too, because it's our contest. We're down to the Sweet 16. Yes, we are, sir. It's going to go really fast from here. I know it went a little bit slow in the first round, but now, bam. Right. So 16, that's eight games, right? That's two days. Today and tomorrow. Well, I shouldn't say today and tomorrow. Monday and uh, Tuesday. Actually, at the time that we're recording this, the first set of 16 games are out, are done. So so Monday's games, Sunday to Monday, 16's down to eight. And then one day of Elite Eight, and we're down to four. Right. And then one day of four, and one day of two. I think by, I think by the time we're together next week, it'll be done, completely done. My favorite it's going to go really fast. Favorite part about this contest that we've been doing. And you know that the, the winner... <laughs> it's not in that envelope. Yes, it is. No. Sealed envelope. No. It's a different I'm, envelope. I'm, it's not a you different envelope. I promise it's not a different I one. I promise. Okay. I would never, ever do it. It's the exact. You can you can take it for DNA testing. It's the only envelope that I've sealed. I've put in here way before the tournament started, before the field even came out. I put in this sealed envelope, envelope the winning champion, and I might have even put in who they beat. I can't remember who I put in, but I know who I put in, and that's the winning team right there. For some reason, I, I, I don't believe you at all. It's right there. You're gonna, and you're going to open it. I can't wait. Next, next episode 90, because the tournament will be over, you are going to open that envelope and see how I did. Give me the first two envelopes that you replaced. <laughs> I want to open those ones first. I, I, okay. I'm, you know what? I'm now I'm not going to let you. I'm, we'll never <laughs> open it. If you, if you can't trust me, I then trust okay. All right. Fine. All right, but somebody was mad. They said an awesome song by Waylon Jennings or some crap song by a guy nobody can name. Happy Days? Yes. Yeah, is it a crap song? Is it a crap song? No. I was kind of wondering. No, it's 50s. It's beautiful. That wasn't the, Do you remember the original? Monday, happy day. What? I think they did Rock Around the Clock in season one. Rock the, around 
The clock yeah, the Bill Haley song. Yeah, I wonder why they they switched it. But because they wanted to win this tournament. Oh, makes sense now. Twenty twenty, on April twenty third, two thousand five, the first ever YouTube video was uploaded. We just celebrated the anniversary of YouTube fifteen years ago. Isn't that weird that YouTube's been around fifteen years? And it's probably only about two and a half that I know what YouTube is. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> I so, think I was oblivious <clears throat> the, the first 12 years of it. The first ever video was co-founder Jawad Kareem. He posted an 18-second video titled Me at the Zoo. It has 90 million views. And then Kareem and his partner ended up selling YouTube to Google for $1.65 billion. Oh, my God. Not bad work for those fellas. I hope he's doing all right. You think they're, they're counting their money? Uh, what are they doing? Yeah, they're counting their money. Oh he put up God. one 18-second video of him at the zoo. It took off, and then he sells it for $1.65 billion. Oh, kids, go to school. Learn computer science. It can pay <laughs> off one day. I told you that my son, is a, I don't think this rivals YouTube, by the way, he put together the bracket. Every time, we, every time I send out a bracket update with the, the, the lines filled in, he goes and he sh- photoshops and takes him about 10 seconds and yeah. movies his dad. Here it is. Crazy. It's unbelievable. I, yeah. And I can't do any of that stuff. I have no. no idea how to do any of that stuff. No clue. Yeah. Health officials warn. We haven't talked about the coronavirus. I mean, that's a good no, sign no, that no, it's no, not on the, on the mind yeah, as much. You know, we've talked plenty about it. We can talk more about it. Well, there, there was warn of it spreading through droplets generated by sneezes and coughs, obviously. But some people have wondered whether passing gas could also be a culprit of transmission. You know, it always comes <laughs> down to this. <laughs> Well, that's not the worst thought in the world. Number two in the shower. <laughs> yeah. Bleaching or tanning yeah, the butthole. That's right, yes. And now we're spreading the coronavirus well, are with we? a little passing of gas. So on a, an article from the British tabloid Daily Star titled, Coronavirus could be spreading across the globe through farts, <laughs> claim doctors. All right. Some doctors have come out and said there isn't much oh, science on it. And God. the CDC in China weighed in saying that wearing pants is enough to stop the transmission. So it could technically be transmitted if you're farting naked. So there you go, people. Wear your pants. Wear your pants. Yes. That's my message to everybody. Is it six feet? Is it still the six feet rule? (laughs) The chair I'm sitting in is safe, by the way. There you go. Oh, my God. All right. So, uh, yeah. Do you have anything or do you want me to do one more? Do one more. Gotcha. Do one more. I'm trying. I'm trying. Google's not responding, but I'm trying to get the stats of Brian Blades versus Doug Baldwin. I'm just not, I'm not getting any, I'm not having any luck here. I told everybody about a semi-truck full of toilet paper that caught fire. Then there was a truck of paper towels that caught fire after that. Yeah. Well, there's now been a truck full of beer that crashed, spilling beer Uh-oh. all over the roadway. It's, it's kind of painful to look at. It's just bottles and broken bottles and glass and liquid. The driver of the truck, he became trapped inside um, after it overturned, and he's been released. Yeah, other injuries were not considered life-threatening, but the, the tragedy is the waste of all the beer during a quarantine. Before we go, or before we name the show, did you hear the interview on 88P for the patrons with a guy from the Zoo and Aquarium Association I did. about Joe Exotic and your favorite show, Tiger Tiger King. Yes. What'd you think? Do you feel... I sort of felt sorry for him in a way that... For, for, sorry for who? Him. Yeah, for him. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, you can tell he's a true animal lover and he was really disgusted by the, what Joe Exotic was doing. And almost it's almost like, why are people even watching this? It's really sad. These animals are getting spoiled meat from Walmart and all the other horseshit that goes on there that's cruel to animals. Yeah, I felt kind of felt kind of sorry for him, but he felt he seemed like the real he deal. He wants to pass legislation. Well, he 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 served under Barack Obama. Yeah. He he wants to pass legislation that allows them to go shut these places down. 
and make it very, very clear. Right now, everything is so vague, and there's such gray area in the law that it's hard to shut these places down. Some of them have been. Some guys have been thrown in jail. I guess Joe Exotic's in jail. I haven't got but to that not, part yet. Not for the animal stuff, though. What? <laughs> not, not for, for the animal, animal stuff. stuff. Well, that's what I'm understanding. <laughs> but I think it was partly, wasn't there some animal stuff that he violated? Some cruelty to animal stuff besides the murder for hire plot? I thought that there was some... There was a combination of charges. Yeah, Maybe he's I'm selling, he's breeding, and doing the whole thing. Yeah. Are, are you two episodes in on that still? Or are you? Moving yeah, I'm along? still only. I'm still only two because I, I don't know. We're watching other stuff. Okay, but I, but I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to make it through. I think I'm going to make it through. All right, all right. You got the I, stats. I don't have the stats. I, got I can't. Do you really? Yeah. You think that Brian Blades had the stats of Doug? Probably. Well, I want, before I look, I kind of want to take it back. <laughs> now you got me worried. <laughs> don't take it back. All right, are you going to be able to remember these? It's, yeah. All right. Yeah, easy. All right. Uh, let's yeah. see. Just give me receptions, yards, and touchdowns. That's Four, all I need okay, to know. Doug Baldwin. Doug Baldwin, 400, number 89. 493 catches. So 500 catches. Yep, 6,500 yards. Ooh, not, not many. 6,500 yards. 49 touchdowns. 49 touchdowns. Let's say That's 500, 65, 45. 500, 6,500. And 49 touchdowns. 49, 50, okay. Brian Blades. Yeah. 581 catches. More catches. 7,620 yards. More yards. yards. 34 touchdowns. Less touchdowns. But if you go back and look at some of the turds that were thrown to him, holy, I mean, we're talking Kelly Stoffer, Rick Meyer. Rick Meyer. I mean, Tuck Baldwin's got Russell Wilson. So I think Blades might be the better receiver. I think I was right this whole time. And the fact that you would poo-poo a Miami guy, you really should be ashamed of yourself. Hmm. <laughs> now, for me to plead ignorance, I would say that I wasn't here when Brian Blades played. I yep. don't. Th- I, I think he was gone by the time I had arrived in '94, '95. So, and, but I remember Brian Blades. At, no, he was here. No, he was here till '98. Was he here till '98? Yeah, but I don't think he was. Eh. He was here till '98. He st- was he? Uh, yeah. He okay. Was, yeah, '98. Joey Galloway must have played with him then, because Joey Galloway came in in that yep. at, at that point. All right. You think I, I don't know. I, you know, Doug Baldwin was so popular. He was on such good teams. Yep. He caught a touchdown. He got touchdowns in that Super Bowl. So clutch. Second Super Bowl. Yeah. Second Super Bowl. Well-spoken. Great pillar of the community. I, I don't know. Brian Blades will go on that list with Cortez Kennedy as these amazing talents that played on just shit teams. Unfortunately, we don't remember them as well. Should we go episode Brian Blades? Do we do that? Or do we go Mike? Do we can go off the board with Mike Ditka? Or one of those, or we go Doug Baldwin, or we do a combination, or we just you know make a Kendall Gill for 1989. I don't, I don't know, Romeo yeah. Robinson, yeah, yeah, Ramon Ramos, or whatever the guy's name was. Who else was on that that Michigan team? Who it wasn't just Ramil, it was a good team. They had Glenn Rice. <sighs> did, no. they have a, did they have Sean Higgins? Nah, I'm, where did Glenn was, Rice go? He went to Michigan. I think Glenn Rice might have been what, the other one. Was he on one. the Was he on that team? I think so. That was was a good Steve team. Fisher the coach of that team? I think Steve Fisher was the coach. Yeah. Yeah. Good teams. Maybe we give it to the Kingdom for 1989. I don't know. You know who was the coach of the losing team? Tell me. Wait, I'm sorry. The losing team? Would have been Seton Hall. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, PJ Carlissimo. <laughs> That's right. Where was he born and raised? Oh, Scranton. Scranton, Pennsylvania, baby. <laughs> Every time you ask him to speak, Scranton, guess, Pennsylvania. Scranton. There you go. Hi, I'm Mike Levy of Believing Son. Um, <laughs> who was the starting point guard for Duke in that final four? Well, Bobby Hurley? I don't know. Be- no. It was before Bobby Hurley. Mercer Island, Washington. Oh, Quinn Snyder? That's right. No, no, no. In 89? No. It wasn't Bobby Hurley. No. it was. I, I don't remember ever Quinn Snyder being the starting point guard really? on a Final Four team. 
starting point guard on the final four. Danny Ferry, I'm pretty sure he started. Oh, I'm going to check you out on that right after the show's over. So we got to we got to figure <laughs> this out. I'm right going to run. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I love Quinn Snyder. I don't ever remember him being the starting point guard on a final four Duke team. Okay, I remember it. I'm okay, pretty sure I do. Final four. I know he was on the team. I know he was a player. I yeah. know he was a guard. I don't remember him being a point guard on a final four team, but I could be wrong. You don't okay. think Bobby Hurley as a freshman was starting? No, no, no. It wasn't Bobby Hurley. Okay. That's why I wouldn't ask. How many point guards are on the roster then? I mean, if it's not Quinn Snyder or Bobby Hurley. Okay, we'll check. It could have been. Well, Johnny Dawkins would have been gone by gone, then. Yeah. And Leitner was a freshman. And the guy that coached uh, Harvard, it's coaching Harvard now that was on. Uh, what's the guy's name? It was Dawkins' running mate, and I can't remember. Hammaker. Tommy Hammaker. He was gone. Yep. Um, I think it was Quinn Snyder, okay. to be honest with you. Okay. There you go. What about episode? You make the call. You're the Seahawks guy. Uh, you were a Seahawks fan when Brian Blades was here. You were a Seahawks fan when Doug Baldwin was here. Was here. If you think that Brian Blades deserves it over Doug Baldwin, say it now and say it proud. Episode. Mike Ditka is in the books. <laughs> 